0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher
2: Media, let's make some noise.
1: Genetics, what can it mean, the ability to perfect the physical and mental characteristics of every unborn child?
2: The
0: ability of genetic to choose the genes in society.
1: In the not-too-distant future... Our DNA will determine everything about us. A minute drop of blood, saliva, or a single hair determines where you can work, who you should marry, what you're capable of achieving. In a society where success is determined by science divided by the standards of perfection one man's only chance how do you expect to pull this off? I don't know exactly is to hide his own identity this is the last day that you're going to be you and I'm going to be me by borrowing someone else's congratulations what about the interview? that was it
2: do you think you'd be doing what you're doing if it wasn't for who you are what you are
1: i have a feeling you might be there under false pretenses playing somebody else's hand they have got my picture plastered up all over the place they will recognize me they won't recognize they'll recognize me i don't recognize you they won't believe that one of their elite could have suckered them all this time they are going to find me but in a place Where any cell from any part of your body can betray you. How do you hide? When we all shed 500 million cells a day. Ethan Hawke. Uma Thurman. Welcome to Gattaca.
0: welcome to the projection booth i'm your host mike white join me once again is mr chris comments hello everybody also back with us this week is mr Skiz Sizik. hi everybody on this episode we are discussing the 1997 film from director andrew nickel gattaca also written by nickel the film stars ethan Hawke as jerome morrow or is he He's actually Vincent Freeman, a naturally occurring person in a world where people can be genetically engineered, for a price of course. This creates a new elite class where genes determine privilege. Vincent impersonates Jerome through a rather elaborate scheme in order to fulfill his dream of leaving the planet and becoming an astronaut. Yada yada yada, spoilers, deal with it. Skiz, when was the first time you saw Gattaca, and what did you think?
2: I don't remember the first time I saw it because I actually thought that it came out a lot earlier than it did because I, I seem to remember watching it at work at a video store, but it came out in the fall of 97, which I guess was around, I guess I was still working at a video store then, but not much. <laughs> but it, anyways, long story short, I thought I, I thought I watched it at a different video store. Uh, so I guess I saw it in 97 or whenever it came out on video and I loved it. I, I was sort of surprised that I didn't, really know anything about. Like, It didn't seem like there was any buzz that I had heard. It wasn't really renting that well. Yeah, and I just couldn't understand why. I thought it was a a very cool, original sci-fi film, especially for at the time. I remember uh, the title for some reason. Every time I would hear the title, I would think of uh, Al Pacino, you know, running around going, Gattaca, Gattaca.
0: They should have gotten Al Pacino to do the ad campaign. No, because I totally think that too. I think of John Travolta doing it in Saturday Night Fever.
3: Oh, maybe it would have fared better at the box office if that was the case. I don't know. They could have had a Gattaca
0: off. It could have been like the Ant-Man trailer, but instead of Michael Douglas and Paul Rudd doing that whole slapping thing, it could have been uh, Al Pacino and John Travolta doing it and just going, Chris,
3: how about you? When did you see it
0: and what did you think?
3: The first time I saw it was probably in, uh, I guess, early 98, whenever it, uh, it hit DVD. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, this is back in in the 90s, mind you, when mixtapes were a thing. A friend of mine put uh, the, the theme song, uh, Michael Nyman's amazing the- uh, opening theme, uh, on a mixtape. And I'm like, what the hell is this movie? And he's like, oh, it's this fantastic uh, Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman science fiction movie. At the time, I had a real bug up my ass about Ethan Hawke. Uh, I hadn't seen any; I, I wasn't all that familiar with him, other than uh, *Reality Bites*. I was like, I'm not, you know, watching the movie with a guy who looks like clove cigarettes. I, I have no desire to see that. You know, I, I was kind of talked into watching on DVD, and I was floored by it. It became one of these movies that I just kind of was obsessed about, and I made it kind of my own personal mission to spread the gospel of Gattaca, because I was really blown away by how smart of a movie it was, just kind of dealing with a lot of things that I felt were going to be an issue down the road with mankind, and given, given the way things are going scientifically right now, maybe not so much, down the road hopefully uh, science will reign again and these kinds of problems may become an issue. I don't know why I had to get political there and get off on a tangent, but uh yeah, I love this movie from the start, Mike. It's funny.
0: I also had a real bug on my ass about Ethan Hawke, uh, but luckily I had seen, despite my better judgment, I had seen Before Sunrise, which completely changed my opinion on him because I was also very much of that Reality Bites. I mean, I hated Reality Bites so much that it colored my perceptions of everyone involved with it. Everyone who liked the movie, everyone who talked about the movie, everyone who owned a Dr. Zayas doll, everybody, anything to do with that movie, reality itself, I couldn't stand after that movie. Luckily, before sunrise turned me around. And I'll be frank. I don't remember when I first saw Gattaca because again, it had, it's got a bad title. I mean, it's a clever title in that it's just, you know, GATC being used for it. But yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, Skiz. Every time I think of the title, I think of Al Pacino, which at this time, Scent of a Woman, that kind of turned me off from Pacino. Even Sim 1, which also was the same director, Andrew Nichol and writer. Um, yeah, that, that didn't do it for me either. But yeah, this was such a clever science fiction film and it's a sci-fi film, but it's like one of those really low-rent science fiction films. I mean, there's probably a lot more special effects in this movie than I give it credit for, but this really reminds me of those films that are in that mold of, like, Alphaville, where we'll take you to interesting locations, put you in interesting clothes, give you some good dialogue to expound, and that's about it. I mean, we get a couple shots of rocket ships taking off, but... Even those are almost superfluous to the story because this really, at the heart of it, is a really
3: solid tale. They were trying to have this movement towards cerebral science fiction, and for better or worse, movies like this and, depending on your your view on it, Strange Days and Twelve Monkeys, like they were trying to do more than just be. They were trying to be intelligent science fiction about you know the world we live in and where we could be going, and I, I really like that. You know, we had this brief period in the 90s where it was, hey, we're going to have these smart science fiction films again. Of those three I just mentioned, I think maybe 12 Monkeys was the only successful one financially. But uh, yeah, I I, I enjoy this movie because I do think it's this kind of really fun retro future movie that has a lot to say and is just packed with actors that I love in it as well. Yeah, the cast is
0: absolutely amazing. I mean, everybody on down the line, I mean, I love Elias Codius. I love Blair Underwood. I mean, it's it's almost one of those where it's like, you know, the third guy to the left is somebody who you know and you really care about. And it, it is filled with so many great faces. It's filled with some unusual faces, too. I mean, it, the use of Gore Vidal as an actor rather than as a writer or as a like kind of a, a mouthpiece is really interesting. And I think that he does a pretty good job in this. I don't know if it's just me or not, but him being this kind of puffy white guy with white hair, he seems like he's on one side of a mirror and Ernest Borgnine's on the other side of a mirror. And again, Ernest Borgnine, barely in this movie, but every time he's on screen, he makes me smile.
2: Yeah, same with Alan Arkin. Yeah, I'm always happy to see him in a film and, you know, we don't see him that often. But uh I, I really wanted him to, uh I don't know, triumph over Anton <laughs> <laughs> As I was really rooting for him, I, I mean, before before you find out, and spoiler, before you find out that you know his boss is you know the brother of the guy they're looking for, you know, I'm I'm just rooting for Alan Arkin to put this young guy in his place. I'm kind of sad it never ha- really happens, but still, he's great. Like every second he's on screen, I'm loving him.
0: The relationship that he has with Anton is one of the most interesting things in the movie because we as the audience don't know that Anton is Vincent's brother. And then even when we do, we don't necessarily know what his end game is. Like, is he going to support his own brother? Is he going to turn his brother in? Is he going to, you know, ruin this, this long con that Jerome slash Vincent has been pulling or what is going to happen? so the, the push and pull between Arkin and Anton is really, there are times where I think like, oh, Anton is putting on the brakes of the investigation, and then other times it feels like he's really putting on the gas in the investigation. So I don't necessarily know at any one point, is he trying to further this,
3: or is he trying to slow it down? Yeah, and I like that a lot, because I really think it does build up the suspense in the film, and just uh, just you know, it's it's quietly like unnerving, because you, you really are pulling for Vincent slash Jerome to succeed and, and go to the stars, but I could have very easily seen this movie have not that, as the happiest of endings, but have, have it be a complete, complete downer of an ending instead of this kind of life affirming thing that it winds up to be. So I wasn't sure that he was gonna succeed. I, I think the movie could have very easily like put a sledgehammer across your face at the end to be like, yeah, in this type of world that we live in, those who dream who aren't the privileged have their dreams smashed. I, I feel like it could have gone that way very easily and it's nice the way that they set up this world, this whole world
0: where you can order your children, and the way that the story is laid out is very nice. We get this introduction to the world a little bit, and then once we get the death of the director at the Gattaca facility, then we go into this extended flashback, and then we get uh, Vincent narrating it and I'm going to vacillate between Vincent and Jerome for the most part, I think I'll call him Jerome, but sometimes I'll call him Vincent. Um That is the Ethan Hawke character and we get his voiceover taking us into this world. Once this sequence is over then we don't get his voiceover again, which is nice because he kind of takes us by the hand, leads us back into his past, tells us more about him as a person. And then once we rejoin the present day, we don't get that again. So we don't have this really ponderous narration. Like we could have gotten some really awkward lines, but as it was, you know, he's the person we're supposed to identify with. So it was really nice that he just says, okay, let me tell you about me. And let me tell you about the world in which we live and just kind of takes us in here and introduces us nicely to how things are set up. And he is one of these, You know, his parents didn't have him genetically engineered, and as soon as he comes out of the womb, he's already got a doctor there saying, okay, he's got 44% chance of manic depression, he's got this percent chance of this, yada, 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 and then he's got 99% chance of heart failure, and he won't live until he's, you know, past his 30s. And after that, his parents treat him like he's made out of glass, and his dad just can't deal at all. So they end up having another child who is genetically engineered, and that's where we get the Blair Underwood character talking to us about what they can do for these children. And at the same time, while we're seeing this new, this brother grow up, Anton, who takes his father's name, as we're seeing Anton growing up, we're also seeing Vincent being shut out of things. And it's subtle. You know, it's not like... It's, some of it is maybe a little heavy-handed, but really they're showing us pretty much institutional racism, and now it is genoism. As far as oh yeah, we can't even handle the insurance if your kid were to come to our school. You better just leave them at home.
3: I, I really think that this, you know, this genoism could very well be a problem in the future. You know, if I, again, I don't know if this specific future that we're on. On course for right now but uh, but I, I do feel like that this this genoism thing you know i i i have to say i'm a, i'm such a sucker for any kind of stories where uh genetic engineering is at the heart of it just then i think that goes back to my star trek 2 thing that i have but i i really think that uh that this movie does kind of raise some really interesting questions about how we treat each other because as a society we're so used to being prejudiced on basis of one thing and now you know here's a future where it's supposed to be a better future and boom this hatred is uh this hatred and prejudice is coming uh to us on an entirely new stage and uh i i think that's an interesting thing to explore and this movie does it excellently
2: some of the little things that popped up in the film, I can see those becoming a reality in the not-too-distant future, which is when this film is supposed to take place. It was like a window where the women were going and having hair checked and and their mouths swabbed after kissing guys to find out whether these are guys that would make good partners. Like I can see stuff like that coming sooner or later. It, we may already have it, for all I know. But uh yeah, there's just a lot of things in this film that I hate to say are predicting the future more than just being fantasy about the future
0: chris you mentioned star trek 2 and there's the whole idea of khan being the you know the, the the guy who wins the genetic wars and how he has been engineered to be this perfect being and looking at ricardo Montalban, i have no doubts in my mind whatsoever there's a great article that i read about gattaca and they really did a lot of comparisons between Getica and Star Trek and that whole idea of Star Trek being this inclusive universe. Like once we get, you know, in the 50s, we had Nichelle Nichols on the deck. There weren't a whole lot of other people of color around other than, you know, Sulu. But we started to get more of that as we went along. You know, Next Generation, we had Geordi. We had Michael Dorn. So now we're including Klingons. We're including Androids. But there's still, like, you know, Star Trek's so white, right? You know, it just we still have the majority of our characters are white people. And with this, it's interesting because we've got Blair Underwood who's there talking about genetics. We don't get a whole lot of other speaking people of color roles. Like we get the woman who runs the Underground Club where Jerome and Eugene go. But otherwise, we don't necessarily have them as main characters, though we get their faces. And we get the faces, especially at the very, very end, w- the other astronauts who are in the ship with Jerome are, you know, uh, there's a Asian woman, there's an Asian man, there's a black man. So we see these faces there with him. I
2: was trying to think of how many women actually have speaking roles. I think it's just
0: cavendish and uma thurman and the mother right are there any others well there's the asian doctor who takes the readings at the beginning yeah there's that woman at the club there's like the woman who comes in and says that she kissed her boyfriend deeply so they can take a good swab but yeah there's not a whole lot apparently and i i missed it i was even looking this time apparently maya rudolph plays the The nurse, who the delivery nurse, I totally miss that every single time I've watched this.
3: I've never caught that. I always see uh, Ken Marino as I believe the uh, Ken Marino from the state uh, as the guy who I I think actually that woman who got who kissed the guy you were just talking about is going. He's going to like run a test on you know to see if they're a match or whatever. But he's in it for like a second. And as a huge uh, fan of the state that which was on around the same time this movie came out that. That really kind of t- takes me out of the movie uh, for a second. This whole idea of, uh, of eugenics and kind of doing things to enhance and make your humanity better, and invariably it winds up with people losing their humanity, it's kind of a tried-and-true sci-fi trope. And I think this movie really is the first one to just delve into this in such like a serious manner. Because it's it's a very intellectual kind of science fiction film, which is part of the reason why I think it bombed at the box office. But I know uh, – I, I, I do know that like this uh, – I'm involved with like Nerd Night Philadelphia here in, in Philly. And I know that this movie has been like the focus of talks from geneticists who love or hate this movie for – uh for reasons of either it supports what they want to do or it negates what they're trying to do in their own work. So it's interesting that this movie's had kind of like a second life within the scientific community.
2: Who's it? Greg Greg Sestero from The Room is apparently an uncredited extra in this film. I just saw that on IMDb, but I, I seem to remember reading that. Maybe I, maybe that was in the, mentioned in the Disaster Artist book or something. That, that was some of the work that he got when he
0: moved to L.A., Another genetically superior person. That beard, at least. I could never grow a beard that looks that good. Anyway, how is your sex life? The way that we look at and follow and change our opinion of the Uma Thurman character, Irene, because at first she seems like she's being set up as being a very duplicitous woman, and then when she goes and takes that hair of Jerome's or she thinks it's Jerome's hair and gets it tested and finds out what a perfect person he is. He's what, like a 9.4 out of a 10, right? She gives us a really blank expression and we don't necessarily know how to read that. And then as the movie goes on, we start to read that as being disappointed because she is not a perfect person. She's got this heart condition. I'm very surprised that she actually managed to get into Gattaca because it seems like you shouldn't even be able to get in the door if that's the case. I mean, that whole idea of him coming in, taking a urine test and Xander Berkeley just saying, okay, you got the job and that's it. You know, there is no resume that you're looking at. Your resume is your DNA and that i mean talk about old boys network right it's just like yeah we know this guy he's fine he's from a good family or whatever so come on in and you've got the job
3: i i know i haven't um i i know there's a lot more information about this movie in its original shooting script and i always felt like the irene character like a lot of her was left on the cutting room floor to the point where like i i found myself wondering if like at any point they had the intention of doing a subplot where she herself was kind of like faking her, her perfection. But obviously that would, that would like unwrite the fact that would kind of undo the fact that she is, you know, she has been genetically enhanced, but still has this problem making her kind of the inverse of, of Jerome. Uh, Yeah. It's just like, that was a character who I was intrigued with in this movie. The first couple of times I saw, because she Thurman is, is great in this film, but her character is really underwritten which kind of which kind of bums me out I li- would I would like to see more of more of her in this yeah it seems like we can either have
0: more eugene or more irene and we can't necessarily have both that's the way it feels like the it's being set up and even uh anton ends up getting short shrift uh there's a scene of him in the screenplay where he actually goes and visits a um what do they call them a, a god Baby, like, or whatever the, 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 uh, term, an invalid rather than invalid, an invalid person, someone who wasn't created, uh, genetically perfect. He goes to see an invalid prostitute and is just like, Oh, you're so gorgeous. And it's amazing that you weren't genetically modified, but who knows how long you're going to live and yada, yada. And it's this weird thing of like him. it's like, it kind of reminds me of the cop in the Mac. We just talked about the Mac where it's like Don Gordon going to see the black prostitute and he's just talking away and talking about how this woman, you know, represents so much more to him because she's black basically. And with this, it's like he's slumming it with this invalid prostitute. And when she gets a little mouthy with them, then he ends up putting her down, not literally, but he ends up, you know, insulting her. So it's just like, Okay, this is a strange scene, but that's really the only time we get to see Anton other than when he's investigating his brother.
2: I want to go back to the, the, the doctor. As we were saying, like the uh, and I think it's maybe even said in the film, that the urine test pretty much is the job interview. But then, as we find out later in the film, the doctor's been on to him the entire time. So I'm wondering if the urine test is the job interview for everybody. And that might be how Huma Thurman's, Thurman's character... Maybe there was more to it for her, and and she, I don't know, didn't didn't have this simple way to get in and ma- managed to prove herself otherwise. But yeah, I don't know. I'm I I still try to piece it together. I guess the 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 doctor's son is a big fan of Jerome the swimmer, and that's how he knows that Jerome the invalid is not the real Jerome. And if I read all that correctly.
0: I never took it that way. I thought that he was a fan of Jerome the astronaut, not necessarily the Jude Law version of Jerome. So that's interesting. I never would have thought about that before.
3: Yeah, that that really just kind of opens a few things up now. That I think about it, like it, with with him being a fan, he would have realized that, you know, Jerome paralyzed himself or was paralyzed and therefore could not be possibly going this way. Yeah, Skiz, that's an, that's an amazing uh, interpretation of that.
2: Yeah, I, I thought that's... <laughs>
3: <I've>... <laughs> Never occurred to me. And uh, I'll tell you, I I would love to know which way was the filmmaker's intent, because I, I think I kind of like your interpretation better of the one I've had these past 20 years.
0: Yeah, I always thought that uh, Xander Berkeley, Dr. Lamar, I always thought that his kid was also an invalid, and that he respected... Jerome, the Ethan Hawke character, as far as being able to con his way into the system and be able to succeed and be able to go into space. And, you know, he, he is a hero to the Invalids who know about him, which are very few and far between. You know, this is a very closed uh, conspiracy. It's pretty much just maybe three or four people that really know about this. I mean, there's Borg9, there's Jude Law, there's Tony Shaloub, again, another like kind of throwaway character who is a wonderful face and a wonderful actor. And then there's Xander Berkeley. So, and eventually there's, um, and eventually there is Uma Thurman and then kind of Anton. But Anton, when it finally comes, push comes to shove, he wants to take, uh, Vincent home. And basically make him be the invalid that he's meant to be. He shouldn't be pretending to be something more than he is.
3: I'm yeah. sorry. I'm still I'm still floored thinking about <laughs> his interpretation and and how much and how much I love it. I I, <laughs> I gotta say <laughs> that's uh, great.
0: Yeah, because I never think about Jude Law. I never think about Eugene before the accident. And we know he's got a pass. We know he won a silver medal. And I think the reason why he tried to commit suicide was because he got a silver and not a gold. And that whole line about like, I should never be on the second tier. I should always be on the first tier. So you get that idea of privilege that comes with that, those perfect genes. And he's really one of the few characters who's so open about how perfect his genes are and the way that he'll talk to like service people when they send him the wrong hair color and he's talking to the service person on the phone. He's just like, I'm bored. I'm bored. And it's just like, wow, like such a privileged piece of shit.
3: Yeah. And then he's, I mean, and you know, obviously he, he sees that Vincent, someone who is inferior quotes uh, to him in every way is able to, Although although the real Jerome is help, helping him do that, he's able to do so much more with with you know being a quote lesser person. That yeah, no wonder he, he burns himself up at the end. Uh, spoiler, but uh, yeah, I, I I'm sorry. I feel like I feel like at this point we I, I want to take like a five minute break and just ponder what Skiz said because. <laughs> like I've done this show a bunch of times, but I've never had the the experience I'm having right now, and I love it. Where like someone says something, and I'm completely re- reevaluating how I feel about the movie because of it. And uh, I absolutely love this. This is this is a first for me on the show. Uh, and Skids, I got to thank you for that because uh, yeah, wow, I'm loving this. Okay, I'm glad I could help. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic.
0: I do love when we start off that we see the rituals that he has to go through. Just that work a day, you know, the scrubbing of the body, getting rid of everything. I kind of wish that I could exfoliate the way that Ethan Hawke does in this. I mean, I, I would be rubbish at the Gattaca world, just. FYI, because I am one of the hairiest motherfuckers around, so I'd be shedding like crazy around here. The whole idea of one eyelash is able to trip him up almost. I mean, I would be dead in a second because I've, I've got hair everywhere.
3: Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. A second, second, on That Mike, because I can't even wear like black T-shirts because because my my beard is just constantly. I for listeners at home, I have a big red beard and it is just constantly unkempt and shedding. And I'm a I'm a freelance writer. I work from home, so it's kind of like I'll, I'll fully admit the glamorous life of freelancers. You roll out of bed and onto your couch, and uh, yeah, I could not. I do not have the wherewithal to uh, to deal with that regimen because i just couldn't physically or mentally handle that it's it's it would be so exhausting so so well done to him for uh putting up with that every day because i i know i know i couldn't
2: yeah years ago i gave up going to work without cat hair all over me
0: get those rollers going oh my god i gave up on that
3: (laughs) how genetically perfect is your cat
0: i think they're pretty perfect
3: Okay, well, there you
2: go. <laughs> but I'm sure, you know, if if I were in Gattaca, I would be leaving cat hair everywhere.
3: I have a pub, so the same deal here.
0: All the employees are accounted for, plus 35 cats and 22 dogs. I don't understand what's going on. Do you have a daycare here that I'm not seeing? There's a nice thing in the script where they refer to the uh FBI guys, the investigators, as J. Edgars, and then other people will call them Hoovers, as in J. Edgar Hoover, but then also as in Hoover Vacuum, because they're constantly vacuuming up all of the detritus that humans leave behind. And just that whole thing, just like... Jerome leaving the hairs from, you know, the comb there, leaving skin cells from Jude Law everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's a really nice thing that he's doing. I'm sure that people have taken this movie apart and been like, well, what about this? What about that? But I like that they world build this and they set that tone right off the bat. And so really they kind of tell us a lot of things immediately it doesn't leave us constantly questioning and it doesn't leave us with some huge thing this big red flag where it's just like well gosh what about this thing you know like they're even talking at the beginning like if you come in for job interviews yeah they can get your dna off of the door handle off of the envelope that you sent your resume in off of this off of that or there's always the drug test so it's just nice that they Take care of a lot of those questions immediately, and they let me relax my brain and just enjoy this film rather than, you know, constantly picking it apart with logic questions. It lets me actually take apart the bigger ideas rather than worrying about the minutia.
3: Yeah, that's definitely some of the brilliance of Andrew Nichol. There uh, is how he preemptively sees that the audience is going to want to lose themselves in that kind of, uh, in that kind of that uh, those kind of questions. And uh, I I, I just, you know, Nichols, this guy who I think had a really promising career, who never really delivered on things like you. I'm not I'm not a big Truman uh, Truman Show guy, but uh, I I really feel like this movie was him at his best. And I wish I wish he wound up having a more interesting career than what he's had to date. I am also
0: not a Truman Show fan. I. Recently, as in like a few hours ago, watched Lord of War for the first time, which I think should have started off with all my life I always wanted to be an arms dealer. There's like a real Goodfellas vibe to that movie for me. But I will say that I have enjoyed some of his other films. I really enjoyed In Time, which I know gets a lot of shit, especially because it's got some of the worst CGI. There's one shot in there that always makes like the top 10 worst CGI in movies a uh, bit. I mean, it's up there with like Sharknado kind of stuff. It's this really bad car crash that I can't believe that they left in that movie. And I don't mean car crash like, Oh wow, that was a car crash. No, it's a car crash in the movie and it just, it looks awful. But for the most part, I enjoy what he's done. uh Some more than others. I, just watched Anon on uh, Netflix the other day, and I'm kind of glad that we did this episode because it's prompting me to watch some of his other movies that I haven't seen before. And I I liked Anon. I think that it had interesting ideas. I think they could have done a little bit more with it, but I, I had heard some really negative things about the film and I actually ended up enjoying it quite a bit. And it's another one of those we're in the future because we all wear fedoras kind of thing. But I, do like the idea of walking down these streets that are completely plain, completely gray, and that all of the advertisements are now inside of people's eyes. They're not necessarily out and about. So it's kind of a nice thing. It's like taking that minority report advertising even farther.
2: I don't think I've seen any of his other films. I, I never saw Truman Show. But, uh, yeah, I know it's, it's a shame for him to create something like Attica and then not have uh, the kind of career that should have come out of it, but at the same time, man, he created something like Gattaca. i mean <laughs> if if that had been his only film, even if it flopped, if that had been his only film, that's a pretty good film to have as your legacy
3: another thing this movie does that I really love when uh when science fiction films you know they're they're not just based in a high reality but they're based in what looks to be like a physical reality and by that i mean i love the looks of the architecture in this film uh i, I just the visual style of this film is great because it is so grounded in this kind of retro futurism you know you got like a. I i think one of the buildings was a frank lloyd wright building that they used um and just you know Having it set, there are two ways to do this kind of thing. You can do the the cheesy yet wonderful way uh, that Logan's Run did when you uh, when you filmed inside of a Dallas shopping mall, or uh, when. Uh, uh battle for the Planet of the apes shooting just in century city and that always looks like it's just people in costumes set against contemporary settings whereas this movie i think it really does have this kind of future timelessness to it and i love that kind of th- th- i love the look of this film i i love like i mean if the society wasn't sh- such a shit show this would be a future i would want to live in <laughs> you know uh but yeah, I, I mean, just visually and the aesthetics of this film, I'm absolutely in love with. And I feel like that's something that doesn't get enough credit when this movie is discussed too, It's just how beautiful it looks.
2: Yeah, it's definitely beautiful. I, I was just thinking of something that, that I wonder if you guys have an idea on. And that is when he's in the car and uh, they pull him over, he takes out the contacts and he throws them away. Why didn't he just put them in a pocket or something, like knowing that he's not going to be able to see after that moment. I mean, I know without that problem, it doesn't set up the rest of the scene, but so that, that's like one thing as I was watching the film, I'm thinking, why did he throw those away? He should just, you know, put them on his knee or something.
3: Especially given that society, like someone could have very easily, if someone was tracking him, gone and found DNA of his on the contact lens. And that opens a whole bunch of a uh, plot, potential plot holes there. Yeah, that's that's a good point.
0: Damn it's cuz I just talked about how this movie makes you think about the bigger questions. Yeah, he is the master of sleight of hand. All of those quick palms that he does where he's putting the heart monitor uh On where he's swapping out the blood, where he's obviously the urine all the time, I mean, there's so many different things that he does where it was just like palming stuff. I mean he must have watched that whole series of close magic that Paul Rudd watched in the Ant Man sequel. The thing that I really like about this and that wasn't in this the original script was the line from uh Eugene. When he, when Jerome is becoming Jerome, when Vincent is becoming Jerome and all of the things that he's doing, you know, he has to get his teeth fixed. And I never noticed how bad Ethan Hawke's teeth were until he says the line of, you have somebody in mind and you just see these really jagged looking teeth. He gets his teeth fixed. He gets his hair changed. He gets his eyes fixed or he gets contacts, yada, yada, yada. But he is not nearly as tall as Jude Law was. So when he does that, when he gets that operation, to become taller, and Eugene says to him, I'll never doubt you now. You know, that line, that moment is not in the original script, but that is one of those great things where you realize, like, now Jude Law realizes just how committed he is to this, to go through all of that pain, all that discomfort for so long. That's one of the great moments in this film.
3: Yeah, and it definitely shows where his respect for, you know, what Vincent is doing, it really becomes real at that moment. You know, I think before he was just kind of, you know, taking, taking the money and not really thinking about it. But at that point, I think it's it's a real realization of how dedicated he is and how determined he is that to accomplish this goal and not let anyone stand in his way.
0: We have to talk about the theme of swimming that goes through this movie because there's so much swimming in here. We've got the major thing of Vincent swimming against Anton at the beginning when they're young. And that happens right after they slice their fingers and they're supposed to become blood brothers. But I, if memory serves, they don't actually commingle their blood. But I think blood and swimming, there's a line at one point about um when you're weightless, it's the closest thing to being in the womb. And obviously you're swimming around kind of in the womb and there's this whole idea of uh, the real Jerome that Eugene was a swimmer, the silver medalist swimmer. And even in the script, a lot of the scenes of dialogue that happen actually happen in Jerome's house where he's got a um, one of those, what do they call them, an infinity pool, the, the pool that you could swim against all the time. So there's... This whole idea of swimming going on, and I think it really does have stuff to do with the womb and with blood, because the, there's also, I think, another line about you can, uh, you can't change what's, what's inside of you. You can't change what's swimming inside of you, perhaps is the line. But I mean, that seems like a nice theme that's going throughout this whole thing, and that the idea of defeating our antagonist, defeating Anton at the end, Takes place with a, basically it's a swimming contest. It's like, Oh, okay. That's kind of nice because we never see him again. I mean, that's the end of the, of his timeline in this movie. And it's a really nice way to show again that dedication from Vincent slash Jerome that he is the one that can best his brother because he never thinks about the return journey, which is also what he's doing when it comes to space. He doesn't think about the return journey. He just thinks about getting there.
3: I always kind of I mean, this is this is a little face value on my part, but I always kind of took it as kind of a a sperm analogy because he was, you know, Vincent was the sperm that made it uh, naturally to, you know, fertilize the egg in a time where most people weren't having children in that way. You know, so he he. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little corny and a little, as I said, like on the nose, but I, that's the way I always interpret, interpreted kind of this, all the swimming in this film is just, just to kind of subtly remind you that he's one who made it naturally. He's the, he came from the victorious sperm out of thousands of other sperms to, uh, to, you know, to impregnate his, his mother and, uh. Yeah, that, that's kind of that was kind of the way I always took the uh, the swearing analogy, and I thought that was a nice touch, you know, uh, to have that in a movie where most of the characters are just created in a lab and you know ch- chosen that way as opposed to you know the natural course of of nature versus science
0: or not. No, I can totally see that. I mean, the one thing in this movie that's a little on the nose for me is that his last name is Freeman and it's just like oh okay luckily they don't I don't know if they even really say that more than once maybe so it's just like okay good we're gonna brush that one under the rug and not have to worry about that and you know they could have gotten really into like the names of these characters you know Ernest Borgnine being Caesar and uh, you know the the detective being hugo and so you're thinking about victor hugo and all this kind of stuff and it's like no good we're we're not going to go necessarily down that path too much it's there if you want to look into it i mean even the idea of tony shalhoub's character's name is german and there's a line like i don't even think they name his character in the movie um but there's a line in the script where he introduces himself and he says i'm german and uh the Vincent character is waiting for more and he's just like no no that's my name you know just like <laughs> so it's like okay but yeah it's uh it, it's nice that we're not uh cuz i'm trying to remember what um Gore Vidal's name is cuz he's got another one where it's just like okay yeah that's that's
3: it's joseph uh j o s e f
0: oh you're right director joseph as in like joseph k from the um like from the kafka novels and irene cassini uh being named after the i believe the cassini telescope and i i think that cassini must have been a uh, a scientist so i'm a bad person for not knowing uh the, the whole cassini cassini uh thing going on there so that the mission that they ran so my
3: bad this is a movie podcast not an astronomy podcast so
0: yeah but sometimes i go down weird roads you know that you know that Luckily, you know, the parents aren't like it's Marie, but it's not Joseph as far as the father's name. So I'm glad that there isn't like a Christ metaphor happening in here. So we've avoided a lot of potential pitfalls with this.
3: Well, I'm sure all of that, you know, all, all of those aspects you just mentioned had this, you know, in, in 2008 or 2009, there was talk of turning this show into a, uh, I mean, this movie into like a pro- police procedural. Uh, for maybe sci-fi channel, which would have been a nightmare had they done that. Uh, And I'm sure, you know, had that show gone anywhere, uh, it would have just examined all of those themes and beaten them over the head and detracted from the magnificence that is this movie.
2: (laughs) I was trying to think of the name of the 12-fingered pianist, but I don't know if they give his name.
0: That sounds dirty.
2: Yeah, it does. I know that there's a poster, but I don't remember if he actually had a name.
0: I like the way that he puts his hand over that hand. I, uh, talking about the, um, privilege that, uh, Eugene shows, the other thing that is kind of a throwaway moment, but is really nice because we get to see Dean Norris show up for like a hot second is when he starts berating Dean Norris, uh, the cop character that he plays, about like, what's your badge number? What's your badge? And just like really laying into him. And again, just showing that, like what a brat he can be when he turns it on. This is
2: the the thing where the, the cop calls, says he's a cripple. And he's like, I'm not a cripple. I got hurt in training or something. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great scene. Because it, it's it shows that, you know, he knows how to be this asshole pretty much. And then... You know, for once, he's actually using it for good.
0: Yeah, and when he has to make that crawl up those steps, and of course, it's nice that the steps are this, you know, half of a a double helix, right? When he goes crawling up those spiral stairs up to there, and that whole scene, and that's the first time that Irene is seeing the real Jerome. It's That's a really nice moment, and just the way that she picks up on that and carries it through... And uh that's also like that really stressful moment, because there's so many things that can go wrong in that, just that we have you know the, the, there's uh, allegedly in the in the script at one point anton looks over and he sees a trail of sweat because uh jerome uh slash Eugene has sweated so much when he was crawling up those steps, and he was going to follow that down so you see him coming down the steps at one point, and I think that that was. Probably even shot, but I think that they cut around that so that just when he gets to that landing, he gets the phone call that they found the real person, that they found that it was actually – and it's nice that we are shooting around, to who the criminal really is, and then once we find out that it's Director Joseph, and that his whole motivation is just that he wants to see this launch. He wants to see the launch almost as much as – Vincent wants to see the launch. Vincent's going to be part of it, but Joseph really wants to see it because this is going to be the last time to be able to experience this before he ends up as an old man and dies. Yeah, I was actually kind of
2: wondering, too, whether he really is the guilty one or if he just confesses so that they'll back off and the mission can go on as planned because he cares that much about the mission. But, again, I could be reading too much into it, because it seems like, why wouldn't they have found him earlier if he really was the one who did it?
0: Well, if memory serves, they found his spit in the director's eye, which is kind of the smoking gun. But I want to say, in the script at least, and I don't know if it made it into the movie, um, Alan Arkin, his character... Does some actual old fashioned police work and finds a fingerprint and manages to track him through a fingerprint, which is a really nice thing that we're kind of going back to a tried and true method. Like that's the method that we use now. And now, you know, we're getting into more DNA evidence and we have since the OJ trial, but you know, this is in the future, like going back to fingerprints is so rudimentary, but this is an old cop with experience, and he actually remembers the old ways
2: and solves the case.
0: Yeah. You know, so, as I was saying earlier, I, in a
2: way, I mean, they don't have that fingerprint in the film that I remember, but that would have been him showing up, this new guy, you know, this young young boss of his that I was hoping for.
0: Yeah, I think if they had made that antagonism between Anton and Hugo a little bit more palatable, because I I want to say that in the script. It's really, I think it's really Hugo who wants to go after this perp. You know, he just like, there's a murderer here. I'm going to solve this case. And he's just a dog with a bone. And it's Anton who is pushing back against him and being like, no, we, you know, let's go this way rather than. And he's kind of more sheltering, um, Vincent from the investigation. This way we kind of have it both ways. We kind of have it where there's a real, vacillation between the two characters. It's almost like they took their dialogue, split it back up in a different way, and just said, let's do it this way now. We'll never know. It's kind of one of those things where you have an actor read something several different ways, and then you just piece together the ones that you want and the ones that you say, well, this will be the most interesting. That's what it feels like. It almost feels like they said, let's play the each of these scenes two ways, one where you're going after them and one where you're protecting them. Now where you're going after and now you're protecting them, and now we're going to switch it up in the editing and, and we'll keep everyone on their toes at all times. But, you know, that could be me. That could be me making a movie, which I will never do.
3: I feel like the one thing we're we're really you know learning about in this movie. It's, this is a this is a movie that 21 years after the fact is still f- so much fun to speculate about. That that is absolutely my biggest takeaway from this podcast so far is uh, is how much fun this movie is to still discuss because there's so much just embedded into it.
0: Well, I think it's really timeless too because of the way that it was shot. I mean, we talked earlier about the use of like the fedoras for the cops and. The idea of, you know, these cars, these old cars, but then they put an electric hum under them. So now they're not gas cars anymore, they're electric cars. So it's this weird retro future thing that they're doing. So it really is kind of a timeless thing. Like if you go back now and you watch Alphaville, there's a lot of things that are still really super effective. I mean, the idea of like, you know the tape machine and these kind of things, like now that's a little bit outmoded. But with this, I think they do really well to stay away from the tech. You know, and they, they the the displays on the screens are a little rudimentary, but that's actually okay. And I think they would have been rudimentary in ninety seven. I, I think that they might have been like toning that down a little bit to almost make this more timeless like now we're we're not doing a minority report you know 3d model of stuff we're not tony stark flipping things around and moving them around with our hands we're still using keyboards and we're even using keyboards as a as a lethal weapon
2: i was surprised at how much static there is on the little tv screens every time you see their faces like it seems like even in 97 when the film was made there wouldn't have been that much static on a TV screen that small.
0: Yeah, and those really low-res images that come up of them when it's, you know, and especially when Anton is flipping between the invalid Vincent and the valid Jerome, just going back and forth between those, and those pictures are just so low-res that you really can't tell. But again, they kind of explain that away a little bit with Jerome saying, or sorry, Eugene saying Nobody looks at a picture. You, know, you could put you could put your picture on your name tag, nobody looks at it, they just look at the genes. They don't care about any of that stuff. Alright, we're gonna take a break and play an interview with Dr. Lamar himself, mister Xander Berkeley, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. <laughs> All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr.
2: Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott,
0: take uh-huh. us to church.
3: Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show?
2: Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs>
3: uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy
0: that f- burns the coattails and then pisses on them.
3: <laughs> you review all these exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've... Did you say that before uh yeah i've been saying that for a while really i have been saying that for a while
0: also i'm high on smack
3: well it's definitely working for you guys yeah. people are coming out in droves to support you on itunes we just the other day got a a, a one-star review on itunes well that is one <laughs> that
0: is one star too many <laughs> let me tell you the worst f-ing piece of shit i've ever heard
3: this has been great guys
0: thanks God. ah oh, that was good oh he's got you crying over there uh, i'm good for the rest of the year nice that was too much from, from pace page to screen page to screen so they have 9 times out of 10 they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage
3: can things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look but sometimes it works out and turns out even better.
2: Gregor Fisher, his Bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X-Men First Class together. I've got to say,
4: the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas now, that just makes me <laughs> want to rush out. It's about the act and about the writing. That's really what theater is. For
3: me. Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. Never mind, there's a joke for the oldies. Um, <laughs> like, who's, who's
4: Prince? Who's he? he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys going, right, okay, so you're a psycho, right, can you ice skate?
1: Head over to iTunes, Spreaker and Stitcher and put in the search
3: box from page to screen.
0: I know you know who I'm talking about. It's That guy.
3: Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, he's, right? He's in a yeah, million movies. has the bushy movies. eyebrows.
0: Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes has a mustache. Yeah, well, that, but but he shaved. Well, he, no, he did. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen the, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. Listen to me, Chris Gore and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions? Sometimes
3: we have the answers. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast.
0: I'm always curious as far as, because acting is one of the, I mean, it's it's one of the most thankless jobs when you're first starting out. I mean, it's always so difficult to actually get into it. And I'm curious how you decided that this is going to be your calling and what brought you to acting.
4: Somewhere in my bio that I, uh my father was an artist and who uh, became an art director and then head of the Art Department for a Publishing Company. My mother was a school teacher who who uh, had always been able to sew and uh, we didn 't have a lot of dough and so she sewed things that my big thrill was was costumes over toys from very early on and uh, she could whip up a little costume for me, and I could happily go out into the woods and entertain myself as if I were someone else. Uh, that that just was my enchantment from very early on, uh, sort of a sense of both time travel and uh, transformation that uh, wasn't related particularly to performing for an audience in any way early on. And then later, uh, I think in third grade, uh, I, she helped put together a costume for me that I played Thomas Jefferson in some sort of pageant like uh, play about the Founding Fathers that was put on in third grade. And I just re- still remember, you know, she added ruffles to a white shirt and the changed the buttons on a blazer and, you know, did various things and, and, uh, had boots. And I, I suddenly felt like I was Thomas Jefferson when I, when I walked out there and I can remember that feeling of just the costume had a, a power of magic for me. And, uh, and then my father's involvement with art, always giving us art supplies, Every birthday and Christmas and, and then his seeing the joy I got from the costumes, uh, led him to, by high school I was, I was taking uh, the theater more seriously. And, uh, I was working with the community theater that had sort of really wonderful experimental theater company that had taken me under its wing. And, uh, he got me a great makeup kit and Richard Corson's book on stage makeup. And I that became my Bible and transformation in uh, both summer stock and repertory theater early on uh, became and in college when I went off to college and and I, I went to college at amherst uh, in in Amherst at Hampshire College, which was the progressive brainchild of Smith and Mount Holyoke and UMass and Amherst and you were able to do plays in any one of the schools when you went to any one of the schools and so I did plays at all those schools pretty much and it was my second year at at college that my father saw me in a production of Twelfth Night but my parents came with with my sister who was going to Bennington at the time and they went visit her and then brought her and came and saw me playing Malvolio in Twelfth Night and we went out afterwards and it was my father's taking what I did very seriously that really sort of made me feel like this was going to be it. Because I had tried not to take any acting classes at college at first, first semester, just trying to resist the temptation to get a good liberal arts education, because everything in me had been oriented towards academia and uh, advanced degrees, sort of in, in, the, in the, the world I grew up in, and, and so I was trying to take my education very seriously. But it was uh, the school that I went to was progressive. Progressive education was popular at the time, so it allowed me to indulge. And when somebody the second day at school asked me if I was an actor, and I, should, I told me I should come and audition for uh, this play that was being cast, and I started doing plays one after the other. And and they came up and saw me in Twelfth Night. And uh, my father said afterwards that watching my performance and what he, seeing what he did, that he couldn't imagine what else someone would need in order to make a go at this. He, he said, so if you want to stay here and get a degree, or if you want to come to New York, study there. If you want to go to London, I, I back you 100%. And that was the degree uh, that I needed. In a way, that was the affirmation I needed more than any degree in terms of uh, societal validation. Uh, that had been pre-programmed in my mind. And I, I left school at that point and came to New York and studied there. And and I'd already had a, a fair amount of classical training and experimental theater training, improvisation, and all the rest of it before coming to New York. And then but tried to, you know, study pretty seriously for a couple of years before just going out into the business. Um, but I started getting plays right away after that. And I got, an agent that whisked me out to California. And I started getting work pretty soon thereafter, and I, I just kept at it. Kept wow. beating the odds on the one arm bandit in the corner, against <laughs> all odds.
0: You weren't only, what, 25 years old when you started doing things like uh, your role in Mommy Dearest and in M.A.S.H. and Fire on the Mountain. I mean, you were pretty, you were just yeah. a, a, a squirt at that time.
4: Yeah, and I, but I, I had been on stage for 10 years before that, nonstop. I like I can't remember how many, but there was—I don't think a month went by that I wasn't on stage from the time I was 15 until then.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about that—that uh, that earliest role, the uh, Christopher Crawford and Mommy Darest?
4: It's funny. My second movie was Volunteers, and Tom Hanks. Uh, I played his roommate in college, and we hung out a lot in Mexico when we were doing that. And he used to. Uh, Tell this this story as a cautionary tale to young actors about the brutality of Hollywood. Um, I didn't find that out until years later. Um, yeah, I, I'd auditioned. It was uh, a casting director that that agent who brought me out had first introduced me to Lynn Stallmaster, was a very big, important casting director at the time. and was sort over of Paramount studios, and Frank Perry was an important director at the time. he had done Diary of Mad Housewives and other films, and his um, wife was his writing partner and uh, collaborator, and, and uh, I'd known about them, so it was a very exciting appointment to have to go over there, and, and uh, the agent had stopped being an agent, and it was uh, sort of a coincidence. I'd left the Morris office that he brought me out to because it was too big for me at the time and I'd sort of drifted a little bit to another smaller agency but he'd had a really hard time tracking me down and we had just run into each other that day by complete coincidence and uh, and he goes oh my god I, I couldn't you, you, you changed your phone number I, I couldn't track you down but he, he'd become a casting director himself and Lynn Stallmaster had called him saying where is Sander Berkeley you introduced me to this kid Sander Berkeley and, and he he'd spent all day trying to get a hold of me. And then we just run into each other in Beverly Hills because I was shopping for something, uh, for Christmas for my parents. And, and, uh, and he, he, he says, he writes it down, he scribbles down the address and I race over the, to, to, uh, to, to Paramount and, and they're where they're waiting for me because he calls up, you know, and tells me, you know, one way or another, I just remember going, getting a suit borrowing it on my way from a friend and because i'm supposed to be a, a scene where i'm supposed to be having a nervous breakdown in uh in, because i've it's not they didn't end up shooting it this is the tragic part but the audition was christopher goes in to see his mother and sees her in the coffin and he hasn't had a chance to say goodbye i love you i hate you fuck you no, no, nothing uh, in all these years he'd, he'd been a, they'd been estranged and and so he's this kind of a wrecked dude uh, who's going in to see his mom. And uh I go into the office, and I kind of had one way or another gotten gleaned just enough about what the part was. To uh And I worked on it somehow on my way over there to sort of look like the part. So that when I walked in, Stallmaster and Frank Perry looked at each other and then looked at me and said, Good to see you. <laughs> and they, I sort of just like disheveled the suit was a little too big for me. And uh and I came in and I was sort of playing a little bit shell shocked and and uh I did the scene for them and they, they just handed me the script and said, This this is yours and it was I think it was I think it was my twenty it was my that was my twenty fifth birthday or twenty fourth birthday. Something like that. And uh and I just remember floating across Paramount, holding the script, and sort of feeling like the years before E.T. was a movie, but they have that huge uh, background painting of, of a sky through that covers the entire parking lot. The one end wall of the parking lot is this sky that they shoot against. Um, sometimes I guess when they don't have a blue sky and they need one, but it's just a sort of epic wall of blue sky. And it did my feeling was cause I was parked over on the other side of the studio and I had to walk back across the studio to get to it. And it just feeling like I was floating the whole entire way. And cause the whole thing about Los Angeles is, is you gotta, you gotta have a, before they'll give you a chance to be on film, you have to have film on you. And I had all these theater credits, and I'd had a million callbacks I'd been through a year, a full year of, yeah, I think it was definitely my 24th birthday, because I remember having come out at 23, having just turned 23, and and basically just going through a year of rejection and not getting one thing, because they were afraid, like, well, he might turn in bazucchini in front of a camera. We don't know. He's a good auditioner. Well, what's going to happen when a camera turns on? I don't know. Uh, and so it was really a catch-22 about getting your first part. And this was a huge movie. And it was purported to be like a big Academy Award kind of movie at the time, Paramount. But then say Dunaway was going through all kinds of things. She, she'd, the rumors were she'd been a junkie who was now sort of mellowing out on cocaine. And uh, Frank Perry had lost his wife. And that had been his life partner and, you know, collaborator. And he'd been near a, a nervous breakdown because of having to deal with, say, just raking him over the coals and chewing up the scenery and, and driving everybody out of their minds, apparently. And I, I got to be good friends with Diana Scarwid, who played Christina. And she's one of the kindest, sweetest people on earth. And she basically left the business after that, just because, and she just had won, I think, Best Supporting Actress for something, Inside Moves or something like that the year before. But she just, say it was just a nightmare and and, uh, so by the time it got to shooting my scene, we did the lawyer's office scene first and then came the scene where I'm supposed to go in literally five months after I got the part. The, The movie is over budget, over time, Everybody's out of their mind. I checked in at one point and come on set and I'd met very briefly, like two, two movie stars and one because she was all done up as Joan getting out of a, a 1940s white Rolls Royce. Hello. Uh, and, you know, this is Andrew Berkeley, he's going to be playing Christopher and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, it was, it was all just so exciting. And then I spent the entire day in a funeral home waiting for my scene to go in there and have my nervous breakdown. And break down in, in front of the, the the corpse in the coffin. And it was beautifully written. It was just so simple. It's just a few words that he says to himself and to her. But it was basically about the state of just losing it. And I'd held it together. And I just had lost my grandmother. So I had all this real emotion. We we're in a real funeral home with real flowers. The putrefying smell of the thousand flowers in this room I was waiting in. To where they finally called me in the theater. You know, you go on 50, you, know, you get to the theater an hour before, put on your makeup, you go on stage, but not seven hours. I'm just sustaining the state of waiting to have my nervous breakdown. Then. And then Frank Perry comes over and goes, okay, so we're going to shoot the scene now. And, uh, so Diane's going to come out from behind that curtain. The two are going to greet each other and then you're going you're going to walk out this way. And I'm um, going, um, when, when, do, when do I view, view the body? And he goes, oh, no, that's a scrub. No, we cut that month ago. You, you didn't know that? No, 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 no. We we don't know that I, Christopher ever actually looked at the body. We, we don't know. No, we, what we, we're going to do is just, she, she's going to come out from behind the curtain. You can at each other. And then you're going to exit. And he prances off and says, remember, no acting. And I just went, a scrub, oh, a scrub. What's a fucking scrub? <laughs> and I remember my father empathizing and saying, it's like being gang raped by the Hells Angels and then run over by a Mack truck. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Bezcat. Uh, yeah, so you want to be in pictures, do you? Uh, yeah, so that's a long story. I promise not to make any of the rest of them that long. But it's a good one.
0: Did that role end up doing anything for you, or was that just kind of a blip on the radar at that point
4: well no it uh, it it, it anoints you on a certain level i mean I, I told you the long story because it sort of speaks to your first question of the why would anybody do this choose this profession and you know i I'd always gotten to study work in the theater and I, but it did seem like an insane thing to choose to do it's like my, and I remember even my father showed I me mean, like I, I encouraged you to do this. But I feel I should also caution you, look, here's the pie chart. This is how many people actually get into the Screen Actors Guild that are actors that are pursuing it. And now, here's the terrifying part. Among those in the Screen Actors Guild, here's the pie slice of those who actually make a living. And it's just such... The odds It's are so infinitesimal that you can, A, get in that slice, and then, B, sustain it for any period of time that it... It really does seem like an irrational choice to be making, but because I started so young, I thought I could afford to roll the dice, and you know, I could always go back to school or whatever. I also always had the artwork, and I never stopped doing the artwork. And I had, I was really good. I, I'd been hired from early on as stage uh, makeup artist, and because I had skills that, you know, from very early on. So I always knew I could get into special effects makeup or to twist it another way if I needed to earn a living. Um, and especially being in Los Angeles, I just, I felt that I could do that. So I wasn't scared that I couldn't get by. So, but it was a brutal welcoming into the business. And, um, the, the sense of anointment though that did come just from having before the movie came out just being Christopher Crawford in mommy dearest because the book was such a big deal. And I, I was somewhat traumatized by the whole experience. And I thought, you know, I have so much experience on stage, but just being around cameras just felt like such a, a different beast that I thought very logically, um, about I just wanted to log hours in front of cameras. And I thought, I already knew at the time that, you know, I just did the math that there's X number of TV shows on the air and that they have a different bad guy every episode. And they must find him and bring him to justice by the end of the episode. And that was the formula that was out there. And that there was already a cultural Hollywood being ahead of the curve in terms of uh, political correctness I would say had already wanted to avoid casting black guys and latinos in the in the villain whenever possible but the, the 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 white guy with the and I because I had this skill of transformation I could go in the office and make myself look scary and I I would I would do slight very subtle makeup things And I I already had a a slightly receding hairline, even very young, and, you know, the receding hairline is fine to cast for the bad guy, and I could make my eyes look really scary, and I could do certain other things. I had all sorts of dicks and physical things that I could do. I could make myself look like a drug addict with makeup, and and I could, could do all the mannerisms. I could make myself look like a psycho, and... So I could manipulate my energy because of the stagecraft and, and I could do all kinds of accents. I could, I played a German terrorist right off the bat and, and an English, uh, terrorist, uh, not a terrorist, but an English, uh, sort of in a period. I did a lot of period stuff. That was back before they had as many Brits in the business and I got a lot of work that way. So I just I I had the skills to get to land these jobs once I had a film like Mommy Dearest on the credit, I just started getting jobs in um uh, episodic television and you know, um that that allowed me to get more comfortable with with cameras and then I thought I'd go back to the big screen because I just felt like big screen will show any any flaws in your work uh, will be very visible on the big screen in a way that just felt like disposable sort of where you're going to get paid to get an education if you do episodic television. And then as soon as I got back into film um, I tried to pretty much stay there and only do episodic television when I was like back in town from location and needed to refill the coffers because I did a lot of independent films. Didn't make much money.
0: Well, you worked with one of my favorite independent directors, which was Alex Cox, on quite a few of his movies. I'm curious how you got involved with things like Sid and Nancy.
4: I would say that the makeup had a lot to do with that part. Uh, He was cast uh, off of videotape. He was in London at the time, and I was cast out of L.A. Um, It was a New Yorker character, so I'd, I'd put in time in New York and and definitely uh had new york characters up my sleeve and i to play the junkie drug dealer um street low-life character that, that was written in the script i made myself up to you know break all the capillaries and darken the eyes and i it red inside and in the side of the knot and put an egg wedge in my hair and it sort of looked like I hadn't bathed in a long time. And then I had just this uh, sort of patina, uh, but like instead of putting powder to seal it, I had this stuff that was a little bit like soot powder to just pat on all very, very, you could look at it up close and I know I was wearing makeup, but I, would def- I definitely like people would walk to the other side of the street instead of smiling and winking. I think say girls, uh, as I walked down the street when I had that makeup on, the same girls that would, you know, smile and nod otherwise would actually cross the street to walk on the other side when they saw you coming. And so it, it just definitely generated a different effect. And I then took it to the next level. You could smoke in offices back then and I, I got, when I bought a pack of cigarettes and a, and a bottle of beer and put it in a brown paper bag and, uh, let the cigarette smoke go into my eyes right before I went in, leaned over it. And so I looked completely fucked up when I walked in the door. And Vicky Thomas and I are <clears throat> born a day apart, uh a year and a day. But our our birthday's are a day apart and uh Alex's is another day apart. <laughs> but um, that's neither here nor there. She she was hysterical. just We're still really good friends. And I was just reminding her of this story. And she goes, I did that. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, she, she looked at the picture that she'd been given, my resume picture. And she looked at me and she goes, you look really different from your resume picture. And I sat there smoking, sort of glazed. And I, yeah, well, you know, it's nice to be able to go to an audition. We don't have to get all spruced up and whatnot, you know. <laughs> and, Um, she just sort of like shuddered a little bit and then, okay, uh, shall we try this? And, uh, feel free to ad lib if you want to. We're going to do this scene. And I did ad lib. We had another scene that she'd set up with a kid that was going to read with me. And, and, uh, they put it on tape and it went well. And I got, I got the part and it showed up on set in New York. And, uh, I showed up as myself, and um Alex was, uh, was, I was introduced to Alex, and his jaw dropped, and he went, oh, you're so clean. I thought somehow, miraculously, we had discovered a junkie who could act naturally in front of a camera. Oh, well, I don't suppose we could have... We could have avoided Cassius since we'd immediately written some of your ad libs into the script. So it goes, and he walked away so disheartened and disenchanted that I then went back to the hotel, got back in my gear, and never dropped out of character after that. It was just for him. I thought, okay, what the hell? It was such a great part. It was, uh, that was his fantasy. I would, uh, you know, like a call girl, I guess, having to play out the, the role play for the director, like, and the and the the uh makeup artist had just won uh Academy Award for Grey Stoke the year before, who's two uh really lovely charming gay gentlemen from Great Britain and they were standing behind me in in the line at the at the hotel when they saw me fully made up, just thinking I was a homeless guy um and scuttling up to the to the front desk and asking them if they could if they could keep the maid from going into my room for the next week. And, and then they were so <laughs> taken aback when I walked into the makeup trailer, and I said, "You can take this all off." Um, I just want to let you know that this is what got me the part, and I also want to let you know that the director was palpably disappointed when I walked in yesterday onto the set as myself. He was just so disappointed to meet me <laughs> that I thought I'd better just at least show up on set the way he'd seen me on the videotape, so that. He wouldn't hate me, um, but I just thought I'd let you go see it, and then if you wanted to take it off and put it on the way you thought fit. And, and the two of them looked at each other and they said, You're the bloke from the hotel, aren't you? <laughs> and they started howling. They laughed, and they said, well, You know, we did just with the Academy board, <laughs> So we may feel we have to do it ourselves, but bloody hell, good work, mate. <laughs> and then they they began my education in film makeup which is you know it has different because of the lighting and uh and film resolution uh it has there are different approaches that you can take uh from stage and uh i always did it like whenever i was going into a room i, I always made my thing like i you cannot see that it's makeup you, you must not be able to see that it's makeup, so it has to look dead real. But there's still, you know, loads of, of uh, insider tricks and secrets, and I've gone on learning them. Billy Corso, William Corso, and V. Neal, and uh, uh, other Academy Award winning makeup artists are really good friends of mine, and, and I continue to uh, be in a really, really fortunate position of getting the uh, state of the art. Tips and techniques thrown my way because they get a big kick out of the fact that there's an actor out there that does does this stuff and, and loves it as much as I do. But yeah, that was that was the story of Sid and Nancy. And then he, he you know, as soon as we were shooting the last uh, scenes in Sid and Nancy, Alex leaned in and said, "Get your shots going to Nicaragua." And I was like, "Isn't there war going on there?" And he's like, Exactly. I'm like, oh dear, an anarchist, that's right, uh-oh. But I was uh, on for the ride, and then there was a, a point at which, a couple of months in, I'd already turned down a couple of jobs, uh, I got a call from Alex, meet me out in Santa Monica, and he explained, as you anticipated perhaps, because there is a war going on in Nicaragua, I have having a bit of difficulty getting our visas in order. Therefore I've written a spaghetti western in three days, which we will shoot in four weeks on the old Sergio Leone sets now Maria Spain. The actor the musicians who provided the music for Sid and Nancy, the Pogues, Joe Strummer, Elvis Costello, and among others, are all very interested in trying to hand at acting. And they'll be looking to you for some acting advice. Are the you game? game? <laughs> And I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Yes, I am. But uh, you know, it was a wild ride—the Alex Cox ride. It was, it was, you know, in a way, he's just one of the most brilliant, talented guys I've known, but I've never met a more self-destructive in some ways uh, his anarchy his politics just sometimes so extreme that it just got in the way of uh, like I do. I did feel like I watched a man shoot himself in one foot and then level his gaze at the other and then blow that one off too but uh, I would not exchange for all the movies I turned down to stay available for his uh, I wouldn't exchange the experiences I had in Spain and Nicaragua for anyone else's movies or anyone else's career because it was such a deep, rich experience, both cases. The people that I got to be lifelong friends with and, and the, uh, cultural, I mean, especially Nicaragua, because I then did a film back to back with uh, another friend who hired me to do a film in Chile. So to go from the Sandinistas for three months to the Pinochet regime was uh, my mother had wanted me to be a diplomat or an ambassador or something dignified and in in the long run I ended up choosing a lot of my films for the locations they shot on and the education I could get sort of geopolitical and I always you know you'd meet the embassy when you're with the film and and uh, you can then you know because I'm an artist and I, I draw everywhere I go I would go to the art supply store which is near the university and so I'd end up you know, the cinephiles, the professors or whoever that recognized me from certain art films would bring me into the arts community of whatever city, whatever country I was in. And uh, then I could then introduce people from, you know, the deputy ambassador or junior diplomat could meet me down at the wood fire pizza place with the uh, head of the student union and Knowing that they would have a very interesting connection over different subjects and set things up that if I were in politics, if I were in in uh, you know in, in the diplomatic services, it would have taken me three years of dip of you know bureaucratic red tape to set up those meetings. And so I, I've had really an interesting and varied existence based on access that being with the film has provided.
0: I'm curious, you talked about how you would make yourself up to go into these roles. Do you still do that today? Is that still kind of your way of preparing your character?
4: i try not to audition too much anymore. Oh,
0: yeah, it. that makes sense.
4: A little over it, yeah, yeah. I still want me to put myself on tape for this and that. And if it's some great film, I, I will in a heartbeat. And if it's something that would require me, I just haven't in a while, but if it's something that would require a transformation, I would surely do it. Yeah. Um, I, I, in fact, there's a funny story. Uh, Jeannie McCarthy, who was in Sid and Nancy, uh, became a casting director, starting working with Vicki Thomas, who cast Sid and Nancy <clears throat> and became one of the top casting directors in the business herself, um, had, was casting the year one and, um, brought me in to meet Harold Ramis. And there was some pressure on him to hire some Brit or or another to play the king of Sodom. They always want to go with a Brit to play a king. They say it's just the way they want to go so often. And uh so I, uh she wanted me to get a shot at it. And I knew I had to go for it. I had a, what did I have? I, I had been given, oh, what was this? This is, trying to think yeah one way or another i had a thracian beard from something that i had done and so i i got my spirit gum and my thracian beard out and and glued it to my face and so it looked like it was completely my own it was a really high-end lace uh hairpiece beard that it had the the Thracian sort of wave to it all the way down and then blunt cut at the bottom and it was, it was hysterical. Uh, it looked very real if I was living in, in Thrace, but it, it, it was a very odd thing to be like running across the street in Santa Monica. <laughs> and, and, uh, I guess I, I guess I didn't meet Harold. I, I went on videotape at, at, uh, Jeannie's office wearing that and I think along, a long wig, that I had a long hairpiece, uh, and, uh, the commitment that I had to, to the, the part, and I don't think I wore any other makeup than that, but, but to do the part with this long hair and this Thracian beard, uh, I think by a long waiting is going, well, fuck, and the accent and everything else that I did for the film just, it was, you know, this is more entertaining than Jeremy Irons. <laughs> Let's go with this. We've seen. You know, he gets points to the glued on beard. Um, yeah, so yeah, I still do stuff like that. And, I, and I, you know, that's the part of me that's no different than the, the three or four. I have, I have a photograph of myself at three or four or something like that playing Robin Hood with the rubber stopper. Arrow, but my mother had made this beautiful Robin Hood hat and outfit, and I just look so fucking serious and intense, pointing the arrow. Even with the rubber stopper, you you feel like, whoa, don't shoot me, dude. Um, and, and that's the power of a costume and 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 makeup, and those are the two to me favorite parts still, uh as much as acting with with another great actor and being transported um, in the scene, finding the costume with the costume designer, and finding the character in the makeup uh, and hair trailer, hair and makeup trailer, are just, just, just ridiculous joys for me to this day.
0: You talked about being in independent films, and you were in some of the best independent films in the late 80s, early 90s, especially one that, I don't think could necessarily be made today, which was Todd Haynes's Safe, and that was such a, a great film and such a, a great performance in that.
4: Well, thank you so much. And you know, interestingly, you know, you have you obviously have a very similar taste to uh, in directors that I do. Like I, I, I do loved uh, Alex's movies. I, I got a lot of Mike. I did four movies with Mike Figgis, as I did four with Alex. Um, I, I got my first TV offer from a great television director named Colin Buxy on Miami Vice because of Sid and Nancy. And the British directors started hiring me after that because they just loved the character, the New York scumbag, <laughs> drug dealer. And, uh, that registered and the, and the film was so good. And Roger Deakins shot that film. And that was Gary Oldman's first film. And it was, there was something iconic about Sid and Nancy and Todd loved that movie. And for some reason he got in his head, this idea when he was casting safe that he wanted to see, he wanted to meet me. And cause he'd seen me in other things too. And knew that I didn't look like the drug dealer in Sid and Nancy, but that he'd never seen me play straight, just like that. Straight versus gay. Um, but just a straight guy, like just, just a a normal dude. And so that was like his idea of interesting casting. Um, was to just have me be this, just the straightest guy you could imagine from the valley who just doesn't have any, any idiosyncrasies or any, he's just so normal. And that he doesn't, he's just, he's not a bad guy at all and that maybe because I've played a lot of bad guys, that maybe it would be an effective mislead for the audience to keep thinking I'm going to leave her or I'm going to, because I'd, I'd already played like the philandering husband in Candyman and, and other parts like in Terminator 2, these kind of shady guys. So you're, you're predisposed the minute you see my face at that point, even when I, I looked more or less like myself in, in both Terminator and in Candyman. That you're going to, so you're going to assume that I'm going to be up to no good. And so that was something he was willing to let the audience be led astray to then have them turn out at the end going, well, he's not a bad guy. He just doesn't get it. He just doesn't, he's not equipped. He doesn't know how to converse in this new age world of nuance. And that's his only real flaw. Otherwise, he's a really decent, sweet guy. And so to see me play against type and just be super, so the image of, of, uh and I loved the idea. We just talked about it. I don't even think I auditioned. We just discussed the role and that that would be really interesting. And And I thought, you know, because he said just so straight, I thought, yeah, I think what I would want to do with it is like really not even allow myself to make any particularly sudden moves because my face is idiosyncratic and I have a tendency naturally to be animated. And so I would want to deanimate and de-eccentrify and normalize to the point where like I would make every move very deliberate and very right angular and or vertical or horizontal. (laughs) And, you know, if I'm walking, walk in a straight line and be so simple that there's uh, don't don't move unless I have to just be that spare and pared down because there was something that was so spare and pared down in the writing from the minute I remember my agent sent it to me because there was a request for me to come in and, and audition for it. And this agent was just typical agent response, uh, not of a great agent, but just a, a, a typical agent saying, um, they want you to come and read for this or they want to meet with you. I think maybe on page 60, she gets a nosebleed. I forget. Nothing much happens. And I got the script and read it. And from the first description of, you know, her pulling the cereal box out and looking at the ingredients, I was like spellbound. It had such an atmosphere, the script. It was one of those scripts that was so spare, so enigmatic that I remember thinking it's the first time I'd ever read a script for I won't change a word of this dialogue. I won't add a word, I won't take one away. And that's the only time I've ever, ever read a script, uh, thinking that. Yeah, so I just, I felt so honored to be a part of that storytelling process with Julianne and Todd and the three of us did a lot of, uh, rehearsals. I had just bought my house at the time and I had a nice backyard, uh, and, uh, a big, big house to, uh, to do all the rehearsals and they both lived in New York and so um, that was our house to rehearse in and uh, that was that was awesome it was a great experience
0: i just wanted to let you know that you i probably it was probably inappropriate but when you showed up and leaving las vegas you had me rolling on the floor. You were a much-needed moment of levity for me in that very oppressive film. So your cynical cabbie was uh, fantastic.
4: Well, it's a fun side note, um, I, I met Mike, he'd just seen Sid and Nancy, and he brought me in, and he kind of had already cast uh, Billy Baldwin um, in in the part, and pretty much honestly told me so and that i was probably uh too too uh, old you know he wanted to have more of an age difference between gear and, and the new cop um mm-hmm. but he just he wanted me to just prepare the scenes and come in so that i so that he could justify meeting me cuz there wasn't a, another big part that there was that was the part i was right for and they hadn't closed the deal yet and so i came in and auditioned for that part And, um, he just was excited to meet me because of seeing Sid and Nancy and he had me improvise a lot and he improvised opposite me with the camera pointing at me and he's a, you know, just a super, another guy like, like Alex Cox. And I've also included Bernard Rose in this, the kind of guys that would have gotten 800s on both their SAT, either, either this, that kind of crazy brain. Uh, they're all English. I, I also sort of grew up on somewhat of an expat British community at one point on this farm that I grew up on. So I, I speak the the language, as it were. Uh, the, I have the vernacular of, of the British uh, sort of encoded into me through through my upbringing. And we just, I understand them, they understand me. And and a lot of the, the casting that uh, British directors do is, is by just conversations just like Todd Haynes was in fact um and Wolfgang Peterson I got the part of uh, you know in, in big part in Air Force One without auditioning just by talking about the role but a lot of British I've worked with a ton of British directors and it just came from just sort of speaking a language and Mike and I just hit it off and he really saw an ability in me to improvise I'd started with the Like I said, that experimental theater company was an improvisational company that wasn't based on haha improv, where you're always coming up with a joke in every other line. But situational, environmental, sort of character-driven improvisation is how I was trained early on, and so I could. in that movie, Internal Affairs, he kind of made a scene up for me to play the a guy that's giving cops, jobs on the side, but it's also connected to the internal affairs, so one way or another, there was a, just a scene that he he wanted me to improvise in on the day uh, with gear, and basically to throw gear off his moorings to make him uncomfortable, because he had such a fix on the character, and he'd written the character for gear, so the, the I don't think he wrote that script, I can't remember, but the way the script was written had given gears so much power that he just wanted to have a scene where there's somebody who was a little bit who was kinda alphaing him, topping him, just wasn't easy. And so in the scene, uh the character's name was Rudy Moore and I just kept like being a guy just deadpan, but kept like being a practical joker, just couldn't take anything seriously. And couldn't take him seriously. I thought that would be how I approach it because gear was playing very macho in this role. And so just in the, in the scene. So I just kept making jokes up on the spot out of everything he said, anybody going to trust me. You got to trust Rudy more. Got it. Rudy Moore? Ah, come on. You t- take yourself too seriously. And gear goes over and I remember him saying to, do, do I break his legs now or later? And, uh, I go, Richard, Richard, just enjoy the scene. Just do the scene. Stay in the scene, Richard, just stay in the scene. And he actually got so uncomfortable, he did a couple of things that a very smart actor who doesn't want the scene to be in the movie does by repeating certain lines in the course of the scene, and so the part of it had to be cut out. But certain things remained intact, and when Billy Baldwin is in the scene, and he and I stayed friends forever from it, just because there was something uh, about, you know, I'm, I'm joking with him, something about... Cause all you cops are in the powder and powder and your nose is it powder in your noses. And then I do some cocaine reference. And, uh, you know, it was all improvised and, and, and look look this lurch over here pointing to Billy Ball. <laughs> look at this kid's face. Are you kidding me? You know, and I, it's just, I was just saying, she was just talking shit the whole time because I'm, I'm the one giving these guys jobs on the side and they, they kind of, they need me. And, and this was, you know, Mike kept saying, hey, you need this guy. You need to keep the money coming in. This is kind of, you know, you're, you're being investigated. You to, come on, fucking stay in the scene. And, uh, and it was just like, and Billy was just like constantly on the verge of cracking up the whole time. And, and Mike just forever, I think wanted me as his secret weapon. And that scene that you're referring to in leaving Las Vegas was all improvised. And, and it was just, you, you, you get her in the car and just, you know, this is what's happened before and, uh, this is where, you know, she, she goes to take it and, and they had a camera mount on the, the thing and, and, uh, so I could just drive and talk and, you know, so, some of the best stuff comes out of the proposition in Sid and Nancy. The best stuff came out of the fact that Gary and Chloe had gained so much weight, not physically, but in the, the aesthetic weight of their characters. They'd gotten so into it and they, they were blessed we were all blessed that they that alex had shot the film in chronological sequence almost entirely so when it reached the point where we're at the chelsea hotel he uh, gary and chloe just thought it was bullshit that they would have control over their drug dealer and that they that everything was too clever and too snarky or something and i had william burroughs junkie had been reading and just finished it, it as a beat-up tattered copy in my back pocket and i pulled out i had this thing circled said, "Well, in fact there is evidence to be found from burroughs himself saying that nobody ever has control over their heroin dealer the heroin dealer always has the control no matter how famous no matter how you know certainly beyond the level of a fit and nancy level of fame so I think there's a, there is a point to be made for this. they said. it's okay. So far I it. to let take the script, throw it out. We know what we need to keep after we'd shot a scene that preceded this. And we were going to be shooting the big, one of the big hotel room scenes that next day. We had the set and he cleared the set except for Roger Deakins and, and Gary and Chloe and myself and had us improvise based on what the screen, what the script was. And he just made copious notes and then next day provided us the Shrinky Pages. Uh, you know, the little, you've know, you been on sets, I'm sure. You know, the, the little reduced pages for what's going to be shot that day. Uh-huh. And it was all the stuff we'd improvised and that was put in, the, his favorite parts of of and, and what needed to be retained from the original script in order to keep the story points on track. And th- that's... And right down to, like, uh, I remember him saying, um, oh, problem, I've got to scrap one of your beautiful scenes because you cannot enter the hotel room because, as established in their fight, the door is locked.
1: Uh.
4: Therefore, now, you may only open the door. We can cheat the chain a little longer, but you can only peer into the room, and now you see Gary holding knife, staring at television." Trail of blood, Nancy on bathroom floor. What would you say? And it's like I don't know, you Bad scene. Something <laughs> no, I can't remember what it was. It was just like bad scene. We like, we like. <laughs> there was, was a couple of other a couple of other things like thrown in on top of that, but like you know, some of the best stuff comes out of the situation and in the moment. And working with uh, with Mike Vegas, th- those two movies, and then One Night Stand, almost all of my stuff was improvised in One Night Stand. And then we have become pretty tight by the time we got around to doing Time Code, which I don't know if you ever saw. Have you seen it?
0: Yeah, time I remember that time. one being a real uh, tour de force of the actual, the the style of the movie being really unusual.
4: Yeah. I still want to do a variation on that where it's one screen image instead of four. But mm-hmm. uh, the thing that was really remarkable is 90 minute takes, it was all improvised. Mm. And, um, you know, it, uh, it had four screen images and four camera operators that moved and you moved. One had to move from one group to the next From one camera to the next in different groups or solo and led by a digital watch that one had to keep track of the time on. And so I've, I've got a lot of, I'm I'm about to enter a directorial phase of my career. So my move to Maine is going to help facilitate that shift. The thing that I, I just found so stimulating about that is you rehearse for a week developing the script with actors who can improvise and then you shoot for a week, and in this case, it was the very first. I think it was one of the first digital films. Uh, the luxury of a 90-minute take was that you, you, know, you say action, and then when you cut. It's it's done. You're done. And uh, with four cameras, you can intercut. You don't have to stay locked to the four-screen images. There is something really dynamic about, like in a play where you have. 90 minutes of action. It's all continuous and in in chronological sequence and has the flow of adrenaline that real life does. If it's a a 90 minutes of real time situation like that was, it was. was, And you've got actors, and as he did by that point, he'd found a group of actors that could all improvise. It was pretty fantastic. experience, Yeah.
0: So you said there was a connection between safe and Gattaca, I thought for sure there would have been a connection between Gattaca and another sci-fi epic that you did, which was, um, barbed wire. Oh, really? No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm busting your balls a little bit, but I love yeah. barbed wire to be frank, even though it's, it's kind of cheesy. I really enjoy that film.
4: Oh, it's terribly cheesy. I, yeah, I do too. I, what it is is that there, I, I, I think you're just enough of a cinephile to, to maybe have seen some of the, uh, the, the guy that wrote that was really smart and obviously very clever and basing it on on uh Blanca yeah that was great Tam, Tam anderson in the in the Humphrey Bogart role was just enough to throw everybody off the scent of that but uh for the most part i I kind of there were a few of us that decided to make our references just obvious enough to to make it known, but uh they fired that director after ten days because. In that ten days, when they first started shooting, I think right before they started shooting, I guess Pam showed up in in the all leather clad at, at the Cannes Film Festival as barbed wire with the barbed wire tattoo, and ten million dollars was added onto the budget, <laughs> and suddenly, and suddenly it wasn't his movie anymore. It had been taken away
1: right.
4: and given to a very flashy rock video director who's. Great with visuals that just had never direct, really didn't know anything about it. We work with actors and so it was, it was certainly not the movie it could have been. It should have been a weird dark little indie. Uh-huh. And so it, the script still had in it certain sort of futuristic elements that are just interesting enough that I thought you might have been able to thread a connection, but I was very surprised. <laughs> I, I, I believe yeah, humor much more.
0: Yes. <laughs> so do, yeah, please tell me about Gannica and, and how you came to that one.
4: Well, it is through safe and it was, uh, I think, um, I, I'm, I'm not just being modest in, in saying it. I think it was, uh, quite honestly, because, um, Andrew Nichol was such a fan of Safe that he he wanted to borrow uh, a palpable um, element of the atmosphere hmm. uh, and bring it into Gattaca. He, he liked my acting, obviously. I was the only actor that he cast, and perversely, I think the casting director—I won't name names—but I'll I'll be honest and candid about it—has always held a grudge against me because she he, he was a first-time director. He'd gotten to direct it because he had sold the Truman story with the caveat that he would get to direct Gattaca. Uh-huh. And that a first time director is going to be given one of the most powerful casting directors to sort of guide him through the process with the studio as, you know, just it was sort of a given. And this very powerful casting director didn't, didn't, I remember him telling me just how how not kindly she took to his announcing to her that that role was cast from the start. It was the only role. He said, no, we'll be looking for it, but I, no, no, uh, Dr. Lamar is it, cast. Which is, what do you mean? I have several great choices for the role. It's cast. Why? And, and I, and I would say that it was, you know, not just, just by any means his wanting me as an actor, but because the meticulousness of his aesthetic and right. his research. And like, I said, just three to 600 pages? I can't remember of images. And I remember the table read who we had, you know, fantastic people that weren't in the movie, but there was just this table read assembled so he could hear the script read. And I was on oh, the other one that was cast already Uh so I'm, you know, a person that heard all these other great actors read these parts. Um, but he showed us at the, at that table read this book that he'd already assembled with photographs and drawings and articles and, you know, just mostly photographs with all the science and, and, you know, slides and just all kinds of things in this presentation that was just mind blowing and, uh, I, I just remember feeling like I was looking into the future when I leaped through the pages and, and there was something I think that Todd created in the atmosphere of Safe that had a really, there was something futuristic and sci-fi and just disarming. And the fact that the day that we were supposed to start shooting Safe was the day of that, the big earthquake in LA and so our first day of shooting was postponed by four days. And the whole time we were shooting, we were experiencing aftershocks. And they were big aftershocks. And uh, when we we're the whole time we were out at that retreat, we would have to just go flying out of that building, which didn't seem particularly secure, and go outside. And right outside where we would all run to get out of the building was this cluster of I think it was an oak tree that had four massive trunks, sort of all sort of like a bouquet. You know, those trees sometimes that just grow together and it's four big trees together as one because it's four. So it just, I, I forget what kind of tree it was. Maybe it's a particular kind of tree that does that, but it happened to be out there uh, north of uh, somewhere like Malibu ranch or somewhere out there where we were shooting. And, we would just watch this massive tree shake and shudder and shimmy in the aftershocks. And it was, you know, we were just, it was, and it was right through there that, that, that we got to see that incredible indelible image of the guy that, you know, I think it's on the poster for safe, the guy that's kind of got the oxygen mask on and the tank on his back. And he's scuttling around and it looks like an alien, and it's just somebody who has environmental illness that needs to go around with a tank on his back, but he was almost wearing like a spacesuit kind of look as he went through that landscape. And there was a feeling that the environment was out to get us created by the atmosphere of that script that was enhanced deeply by the aftershocks and put into our adrenaline because we were all on adrenaline we just you when when you're in a building and you have an aftershock adrenaline is released into your system you can taste it and uh it was just a really i think interesting part of that process and affected how we all felt during it and i just on some level i think that andrew picked up on just what was just so unusual and special and strangely disturbing and sci-fi and futuristic about safe and wanted a chunk of it in his movie along with whatever other references he was making and and uh incorporating and i was i was that element for him as well as a good actor to play the part of the doctor and uh, which is really smart and really interesting and, and he stuck to his guns and and that casting director never brought me in for anything after that Funny, like she took it out she somehow held it against me
0: <laughs> the people who ended up on screen it's such a great mix and just you know Ethan Hawke and Newman Thurman and then to have Gore Vidal to show up as uh, in an acting role was phenomenal I mean it's such a great mix of people even
4: Alan Arkin I and mean, Ethan and I hit uh, it off, and we were sitting there at the at the lunch table together most days that I was there, and there were two days back-to-back, and one day where Gore Vidal held court and one where Alan Arkin held court, and both of them richly entertaining and um, both experiences that neither of us would ever have traded in, but we both had the same exact experience, it just on an emotional level, That and and it sort of reminded me of something that my father had said about Gore Vidal. Yes, Gore Vidal's been having a massive love affair for many, many years with himself, and... <laughs> Um, and, and we watched it cause I remember Ethan had the exact same reaction cause he's so brilliant, but he, he was holding court and, and after he got up to leave, Ethan turned to me and said, what a fucking gas bag. And <laughs> I said, I know, but so brilliant, right? I mean, how great that we got to get, I know. Oh, I know. I know. But what a fucking gas bag. And then Alan Arkin was sitting there the next day, and he and I just, like, when he got up to leave, we both looked at each other, oh my fucking God, <laughs> He's so fucking lucky. He told the best stories and the best jokes, of, like old theater jokes, that either of us have ever heard, ever. And so it's just an interesting sort of contrast of these guys that just carry the stories. It's just how you know, one comes off compared to the other, and... You know, I I love reading Gore Vidal. I always enjoyed him as an author and as a journalist, in a way, and and a commentator of society and all the rest of it. But that was just, which isn't to say that we aren't all big fans of his as a writer.
0: Right, right, yeah. The writer and the the man um, can be different people, I suppose. Yeah, yeah,
4: but uh, Alan Arkin. Huge points on both fronts, as an artist and as a a person. So impressive. Ernest Borgnine was there. I mean, we got to hang out with Ernie Borgnine. Yeah, I mean, he cast that. And and I will say to that casting director's credit, uh, the people that she brought on board. Now, Gore, I must also tell you, Ethan and I had to deal with his uh, having huge cue cards. It's just like, what? And he was like, it's like he thought he was Marlon Brando or something. I think he thought that that was better than learning his lines. And you could just see his eyes going from side to side as he read his lines. And it sounded like he was reading his lines. And and we thought like, well, come on, man, just learn your fucking lines. Look at us. (laughs) we're the ones talking to you not that big cue card over there um, but you know it was Gorvadal. and it was a brilliant uh, brilliant use of him in that and just as it was Ernest Borgnine and Alan Arkin and all the choices were great and Uma and Ethan has a good call on chemistry I was there at the table the day they met That I was there at the lunch table the day they met yeah there were some sparks of flying <laughs> yeah hey I was there when tom and uh and uh tom hanks and and Rita wilson met yeah i was I was there for their first encounter they're they're one that that uh, stood the test of time the famous hollywood weddings marriages and and that uh, you sometimes come in contact with it, it ain't easy in this crazy business I took my hat off Yeah. But, uh, yes, yeah, so that's the connection, uh, of safe to, uh, Gattaca. And then, if you want to ask anything else about Gattaca,
0: well, I did want to, uh, ask how that urine tasted.
4: Um, that's right. I'd completely forgotten. I, is that in, in the, uh, oh, that's in the, um,
0: on the DVD, outtakes, right? in the outtakes, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
4: that's right. That's right. That was, because it wasn't, uh, actually urine, but I think I did think that that would be a funny thing to do for, a – and outtakes if they did, nobody knew I don't think anybody knew I was going to do that. I don't think I've ever had anybody reference that before, so I' completely forgotten about that. I think it was just good old lemonade or yellow food coloring or something. I'd watched it being made though, so I knew I was safe although i've have I've heard that you know both uh monks and people climbing in 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 the uh High mountain peaks have had to survive on their own urine at different times, and if you're dying of thirst, uh, I guess it's a quencher.
0: I did say, kind of in jest at the beginning, that I haven't seen all 231 rules that you've done over the years, but of some of those, what have been your favorites to do?
4: Well, you cited a lot of them, and I really enjoyed this interview because of the ones that you from the very beginning uh, referenced. Even you're mentioning Fire on the Mountain, which is, I didn't even know if that was on my IMDB list, but I, I sure got a kick out of working with, you know, as a kid coming into the business. Like I said, I was just a kid pretty much and, and to, to be working with Buddy Ebsen and Ron Howard, Opie and, uh, you know, Jed Clampett and Opie at the same time. Come on. You just pinch yourself. I've feeling that I, you know, I've worked with uh, my favorite Martian, uh, on, on the Incredible Hulk XB. Well, he wasn't my favorite Martian. I wish I'd gotten to work with that guy. He was great. Uh, you know, on MASH to Harry Morgan, I, I, you know, and, and Alan Aldo, all those guys. Uh, the, 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 those, you, those things you referenced even in passing seem like inconsequential, uh, sort of credits, but, um, they were incredible. Experiences for me as a kid starting out because you're, you're wide-eyed and, and stuff. And, and even, you know, though I, I wasn't like a Clint Eastwood fan, particularly by any means of his politics, uh, when I was growing up and even of his acting, uh, when you, when you get hired to work for him, you know, you're, you can't help but to be impressed and, and, you know, then to be able to incorporate uh stories of his where you get to do an impersonation of him doing him talking to you that's as, as as much fun as it is the the ones that were your heroes like Al Pacino and getting to work with him both on stage and on film and and uh you know so there's that's a like kid in a candy shop kind of uh experiences left and right i would say Apollo 13 because i was so infatuated with Space and, uh, in the original, I was a little, little boy when the first programs were started. I was up for, had a bunch of callbacks and I think it was between me ultimately, even though I was a little too young and he may have been a little older. I was a little younger than, than Alan Shepard was at the time, um, for the right stuff. It was when I first came to Los Angeles. Uh, I was, I was, got a lot of callbacks for that. It was very close and, um, so getting in Apollo 13 was like a dream come true just to be a part of that. And because they shot a whole lot that didn't get included, uh, and I was fine with that because it was a testament to how brilliant the film was, um, that it didn't need to be included. But I was, as Ron referred to me, his insurance policy, because I was head of the press corps. And we did have a kind of space school for two weeks before we started filming, they'd recreated the set, uh, Universal's back lot of NASA as it had been in the 60s. And uh these guys that had been in charge of, you know, ground control of Houston and NASA in the 60s, as well as Jim Lovell and, and others that had walked on the moon, were there as technical advisors teaching us about, you know, basically teaching us space school for two weeks before we started filming. And and that was such a deep, rich, extraordinary experience. And I had a particular sort of area of study that I was being given because I had to extrapolate techno terminology into layman terminology so that they could have a whole series of scenes throughout the film that they could cut to at any given moment if they needed to of the press corps sh- shooting questions at me. A technical questions at me about what's going on as a an assist to the audience to follow what was happening. And so I could then improvise and extrapolate into layman's terminology these different technical things. And um, it was a very exciting thing to get to film and very cinema verite and, and it was a big movie to get to do that kind of improvising and was fantastic and it, Ron loved it and the camera we we had all had a great time and, and at the end of the day when he said you know it's just the fact is that there was just such an adrenaline uh, you know sort of momentum to the film that they didn't need to have everything explained because they were just on board for the ride and he said but I can't tell you how much you facilitated putting my mind at ease throughout the entire process, knowing that I had any one of these scenes to cut to at any time uh, that I needed to. And I think we always maintained a really good connection, even though for whatever reason he hasn't found, I know he always, every time I run into him, he's always saying, God, what did I see you in the other day? you were so good. He's just always been really a kind, kind supporter. Well, he was an executive on 24, and I didn't, have to audition for that because I know he, among others, gave a thumbs up. And, yeah, he's just a fantastic human being. And and working with Rob Reiner, you know, again, here's somebody you grew up watching and all the family. And then I went in to read Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenson, two casting directors whose names I like to mention because they cast me in Apollo 13. They cast me in A Few Good Men. They cast me in uh, Air Force One and she's one of the biggest movies I've, I ever got to do. And I, I, I almost did a whole bunch of other incredible movies to them. Um, but they did put me in just a string of great films. And they brought me in for one part. It seemed like I was a little too young for the one that I got. And so Jane hadn't brought me in. But the part that he had that they brought me in for, I was in the middle of reading. And Rob said, wait, wait, stop. He's way too good for this part. Uh, you're so good, you're so natural, Just, just, but hang on, what, what, what else do we have? What about Captain Whitaker? Can get, no, no. Not ain't young, no, 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 go out in the Hawk, go, 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 take, I'm sorry, yeah, you, it'd, it'd be like a call remit, I understand, And he'd just go take a Captain Whitaker. And, uh, I did, yeah, oh yeah, this is perfect, he's perfect for this, yeah, <laughs> guys, go ahead. Yeah, so, uh, I got to, to, I did a little research going down to the Navy base and interviewing it was sort of an amalgam of two different parts, both a professor, uh, of law and a, a captain. And, and I got to inter- interview both at the naval base in, in uh, San Diego, I guess it was, I forget. But, um, you know, I've just, North Country was, was a bell ringer of an experience just because of the, the level of that cast. I, I don't know if you ever got to see that, but if you haven't, I recommend you do just because it's just, one out-of-the-park performance after the next um, and an underrated film uh, about the first class-action lawsuit um, about uh, sexual harassment against women in a very male-dominated environment like uh, the mining industry was at that time in Minnesota. And just, we all bonded it sometimes happens a, a certain level of just like in Sid and Nancy and, and and there's one that you may not have seen the the cherry orchard in in we shot in Bulgaria at the ex-king of Bulgaria's estate I was the only American in it uh, Charlotte Rampling and Alan Bates played the, the brother and sister and wonderful actress Melanie Linsky and, uh, and it was Gerard Butler's second film but Andrew Howe and it's a lot of just uh, Welsh and two Welsh actors, Scottish actors, Melanie from New Zealand and, and Tushka Bergen from Australia. And just, you know, it was an art film that uh, he, Michaelis Kokianis, who directed uh, Sorba the Greek and Iphigenia at Aulis and Electra and Electron, all these other great, great films, uh, had spent the last six years. Writing a film script of, and then spent a year going around the world to cast it, and uh, had this idea in his mind, and we all fell in love. Just like it was just something about that group of people that he found that he wanted to tell that story, and uh, the faces and and the voices. Catherine Cartledge passed away the year after. It was just she's a wonderful ectomorph in in naked. Along with David Dulles, there's, she's a dark haired, dark haired girl in that, just way before her time, she had a rare blood disease and we lost her and broke all of our hearts. She's just an incredible person and and actress and, uh, he, he set it up so we all had to be there from the first day to the last day because he was a theater director and he just wanted that experience and, uh, he had, Everyone's last scene be their exit from the Cherry Orchard the day they leave. And um, there was a rain machine. It was at night, and we all just exited out into the rain, out of the Cherry Orchard, sort of making our last look around before we left. And one by one, we sat outside in this marble courtyard, it's extraordinary with the cherry blossoms the, the biggest cherry orchard anywhere in the world was there at that ex king's estate in bulgaria and the blossoms were you know just in full bloom and and the scent of them in the air and we all knew that uh, this this was over this experience and that we'd all come together and that and we all were both well, i think everybody was a theater actor as well as a film actor and just had this feeling you know, that we were this gypsy tribe that come from a hundred broken families where we meet and fall in love and come together as a family, and then the family disperses, and moves on, and you stay in touch with certain ones here and there and you see them again, some you never see again, and they die. And, and uh, as Alan did not too long after, and Michael Goff, and, and others, you know, you just you never know that it, it was an incredible moment telling that story together. And, uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, there's been a few of those that I just feel so extraordinarily fortunate to have been a part of. And, and that's what I want as a director. I want to bring those kind of magical people together with the magical story and great writing and, uh, great, great people and great, you know, cinematographer and, and bring a crew and, and, tell a beautiful story and have everybody because I really am convinced that when you've got uh, that kind of magic uh, the storytelling is enhanced.
0: Well there is so much more I want to ask you but I'm hoping maybe we can talk again one of these days when you have finished up your first directing effort.
4: Let's save it for then yeah because I've certainly yammered on to give you plenty to have to edit through in order to get something you can use now so um, but 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 reach out anytime.
0: All right, we'll do. This has been fantastic.
4: Yeah, I've I've really enjoyed it too. I, I could tell. You know, sometimes you just sort of get a blink on things at this point, and I could tell this is going to be a fun one. That's why I had to wait until I really had the time I could uh, I could take to commit to it. And, and thank you for hanging in there with me.
0: We are back, and we're talking about Gattaca. So, Chris, you were saying before, as far as the idea of geneticists actually still talking about this movie, it's interesting that the uh, the DVD copy, which incidentally, Skiz, I bought in Baltimore when you and I were yard shopping, yard sailing one time. So, it was a good purchase. I remember, yes, because <laughs> if you hadn't
2: bought it, I was going to buy it. And by coincidence, a year later, I bought mine at
0: a yard sale in the same neighborhood. Very nice. I found that I actually had two copies of Gattaca. The one that I bought with you, and then one that I must have bought on my own. And the one that I bought on my own is is the uh, genetically inferior copy. It's not even widescreen. There's no extras. Oh. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. The, the The selling point that they tout is that they have chapter
3: stops. So, oh hey, <laughs> those are big.
0: Also, to add to the irony, I'm going tomorrow to, uh, donate platelets at the Red Cross. And I, last time I was there, I watched a movie. They have a movie selection because it takes about two hours when you donate your platelets. So I am bringing them my old copy of Gattaca, the 1 to 1.33 version, and they can keep that in their video
3: library for other people to enjoy. There's kind of, that's almost poetic in a way. I like that. That will make some uh science nerd chuckle when they see that. I read
0: also a really interesting look at this movie in terms of it being a passing movie. And if folks don't know what a passing movie is, that they, they I would say that the, they're a thing of the past, but they still happen. There was the what was it? There was a movie with Anthony Hopkins where it was a passing film and I think it was based on a Philip Roth book. That's I believe a passing story. And, of course, things like Imitation of Life or Pinky or some of these other movies, especially more in the 50s and 60s, were about usually women of color who were passing for white women. Occasionally, they would have men of color passing for white guys. And then you go, you know, the other way and you have, uh like, Soul Man and you've got that – oh, God, what was that – Um the one with the British comedian who was a black guy and was playing a white dude. I remember the poster for that.
4: True identity.
0: And then you even get things like, um, Whoopi Goldberg passing for an old white dude. So they were kind of lampooning passing films with those, but, the other passing films were usually much more dramatic and it was this whole idea of, you know, oh my gosh, I didn't realize, some of it was, I didn't realize that I had, you know, black blood in me, I was a mulatto, blah, blah, blah. So it's, uh but there was some movies where there was purposeful passing going on and there was that always that fear of being caught. And with this, it's like, taking that idea and updating it so many years into the not too distant future next Sunday AD and having Jerome passing as this, you know, genetically superior quote unquote person, even though he's got a heart bigger than everybody else, not necessarily literally, but he, his dreams are bigger than his body can handle. And he ends up, you know, doing all of this stuff so that he can get out into space and get to hopefully a better place where they don't, worry about this kind of horse shit, but it, it was an interesting take to see, you know, how passing movies of old kind of speak to Gattaca.
2: It, it's interesting that you're you're able to put Gattaca in a genre with Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire.
3: And of course that there's that famous uh, Saturday Night Live sketch where Eddie Murphy passes this, oh, as oh, white, man. which is probably the most most uh, famous and contemporary example of what you're going for here.
1: Let me get this straight, Mr., um, uh... Mr. White, you'd like to borrow $50,000 from our bank, but you have no collateral, you have no credit, you don't even have any ID, is that correct? That's right. (laughs) Mr. White, I'm sorry. This is not a charity. This is a business. Uh, Harry, why don't you uh, take your break now? I'll take care of uh, Mr. White. Okay. Thanks, Bob. (laughs) <laughs> that was a close but one <laughs> we don't have to bother with these formalities do we Mr. White <laughs>
3: what a silly Negro
1: <laughs> just take what you want Mr. White
3: pay us back any time, or don't we don't care wow that sketch is amazing hmm Oh, so good. What I think is really interesting about this movie is this This is a movie that, you know, it's it's kind of found its audience somewhat over, over the past 21 years. But I'm still surprised at how much it's left out of, like, the conversation when it comes to, like, contemporary, you know, cult classics, for for lack of a better term. Because there's so much in here that I think, like, could really... You know uh audiences now could really pick up on and appreciate, but it's still kind of very under the radar, which I found surprising. I thought after the success of the Truman Show, a lot of people would go back and kind of rediscover this, but with the Truman Show being this you know having this skin of being a very you know <laughs> I remember the Truman show, they were almost trying to market it as this really sophisticated art house film, and it's it really is just a dumb film that I didn't care for at all. That tries to be a, uh, it tries to pass for an art house film. Actually, so it's a passing film in its own way. But uh, I thought after Truman Show came out it was such a big deal that people would rediscover this movie a little bit, and it just hasn't happened. And you know, I, I guess I'm at peace with that because not every under the radar film has to be be appreciated on a wide level. I, I just. I just feel this is one movie that I'm constantly over the years spreading the gospel for because it is so inventive and original and has a lot to say that is going to have future repercussions in society, I think.
2: Yeah, you know, every time I mention this film to people or it comes up in conversation, usually whoever I'm talking to rolls their eyes and mentions either Ethan Hawke or Jude Law as if that the film is somehow discredited because they're in the film. And you know i I don't really follow actors. I didn't really even know who either of them were when I first saw this film. I mean, I'm sure I saw the films they were in, but I wasn't paying attention to to them as actors and I didn't really care and i you know I don't necessarily even like Ethan Hawkes acting in this film, but that does not take away from the fact that I love the film, you know just in general and and i often often wonder like does everybody remember this film just because of who's in it? or did they actually watch it? We know we didn't they didn't watch it because it wasn't a huge success. But at this point, I mean, enough years have passed that it's like just put that casting aside and check
0: it out and enjoy it for what it is. It's time for us to forgive Ethan Hawke.
3: Yeah, I, f- I feel like I feel like the before movies, like you said, like av- after this I went and I watched a bunch of the other stuff and yeah, I mean, I I have forgiven Ethan Hawke. And I think uh I I I think, I think you're right. I think it's time. I think it's time.
0: I mean, he has been in some, some of my favorites now. You know, in, in I will say, like, say what you will. I don't really care your opinion about this, but I fucking love Daybreakers. I really love that movie. So yeah, suck it. You know, that one and the other movie that he did with the Spirit Brothers, um, why am I forgetting the name of Predestination? Also a fantastic film. So I, yeah, he's done a lot of, of great movies over the years. Not all of them get to me. You know, like I still haven't watched The Purge. I still haven't, and this is one of them that will uh, come back to haunt me. I still haven't seen Training Day, but you know, there's a lot of other stuff that I've
3: seen of his that I really enjoy. Yeah, we're we're a long way. We're a long way out from uh, from reality bites here, which which was the movie that, you know, it, it kind of I mean, look, I was I was of the age that was supposed to be like, this is the movie that's speaking to me about my generation and uh, not so much.
0: And I will, I will recommend if people haven't seen In Time, check that out. That's another nice movie as far as a contained sci-fi story. And it also deals a lot with the haves and the have-nots, uh, when it comes to that storyline as well. Uh, that one's a little heavy-handed, uh, at times, but I enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, I would, I would recommend that. I haven't seen The Host, which was, uh, the next movie that he did after that, apparently uh, he's working on a script for a movie called Monopoly, which I can only hope is an adaptation of the board game, because I think we're long overdue for that. So, Andrew Nickel, if you're listening, whatever you're doing in that script, I hope that it has Mr. Moneybags in there. Because, again, talk about a movie that has the haves and the have-nots. That would definitely be there. You'd be hanging out on Park Place in one scene. It looked very much like when Jerome and, and Irene leave the club and you have that green in the background. Everything could be color coded to what the tiles on the board were. It would be fantastic. The other thing we we're talking about too is far as like the whole idea of the, and I won't call it steampunk because it's not steampunk. You know, it's, it's more what I was saying before, the fedora's future kind of thing. I mean, Roger Ebert was falling the fuck all over himself about Dark City, which came out the following year, came out in 1998. And Dark City, it's an okay movie, but the idea of this kind of timelessness and, you know, using older things to represent newer things and all that, I mean, yes, that's been done before. We we talked to, all the way back to like in the 60s, and I'm sure even before that, I mean, even going back, you know, Chris, you're talking about 12 Monkeys, even Le Jeti, there's a lot of stuff That is, you know, just like, yeah, we'll put some weird glasses on this guy, and now it looks like it's the future. Dark City, they were doing a lot of the same things style-wise that they were doing in Gattaca, and I think that Gattaca is a more solid film. I will go back to Gattaca easily, whereas Dark City is not necessarily a movie that I revisit more than once. So, yeah, whereas Gattaca I've seen probably at least six or seven times over the years.
2: Yeah. The the style of this kind of reminds me a little bit of Brazil, which I remember Terry Gilliam always saying that he wanted the film to look like it could take place at any point during a century, you know, whether it was the past or the future, just any all points within a century could be happening at the same time. And that's kind of how this how how Gattaca is with the old cars, but the new technology in them. It's a very similar idea.
3: I'm going to uh, pretend for a second like I give a shit about the Academy Awards and just mention that it was nominated for Best Art Direction. Uh, It lost, but it was nominated. But at least it got some sort of critical attention in that respect, uh, because this is just a beautiful film to watch. It would have lost for Best Popular Art Direction. This is normally
0: where we take a break, and I play a preview for next week's show, but there really aren't a lot of trailers for the films that we're going to be covering over the next month because we are returning to Czech Timber where we look at a handful of Czechoslovakian films over the period of September. We're going to be kicking that off with a discussion of and the fifth horseman is fear where I will be joined by Ben Buckingham and Kat Ellinger. Till then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Skiz and Chris. Boy, there's a lot of S's in that sentence who you'll be hearing again from soon via our episode, The Public Image is Rotten. So Skiz, what has been happening in Baltimore lately?
2: Oh, what hasn't been happening in Baltimore? Um, Been working on some films, or actually been working on promoting some films that I stopped working on, and uh, just making a lot of music in this town.
0: I hear that that movie that you worked on for like 19 years, that that's actually done now. Yes, Ice Pick to the Moon, the
2: documentary on Reverend Fred Lane and Rodellinus, is now on the festival circuit, as is Sickies Making Films, uh, Joe Tropea's documentary on film censorship that I co-produced and DP'd. Both are uh, playing at festivals, hopefully near you now. And where can people go to find out more about those Skiz? Uh The Fred Lane film, you can go to fredlanedoc.com, and Sickies, you can go to
0: sickiesmakingfilms.com. How about you, Chris? How is everything in the city of brotherly love?
3: Uh, great. <laughs> no, things are things are fun here. I'm just uh, gearing up for uh, its convention season. Uh, I do a lot of work with like uh, New York Comic Con and things like that. So I'm just getting ready for all that. And uh, yeah. And how
0: about you? Is there a good place where people can keep up with your stuff?
3: Yeah, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Bionic Bigfoot and at Sci-Fi Explosion.
0: You guys are the worst self-promoters in the world. You should both take a page out of the Chris Gore or Lloyd Kaufman playbook. Oh, my God. I should have heard, <laughs> like, 12 Twitter references in there, an Instagram account. And neither one of you mentioned Instagram.
3: You're, yeah. you're, you're falling behind. You're slacking. What are slackers? Social media is poison. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Now, check this out. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and a Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation, every rating, every follower on Twitter, because we do the tweets, we do the Instagrams, all that kind of stuff. Everything helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Good
3: job. That's how that's how you do it. I (laughs) I have learned. I've learned something today.